You're listening to Twitch Asylum Video Game Radio. Welcome to Twitch Asylum, episode number... Num- 16. No, 16. 16. Wow, it seems like it should be like 24 or something like that. Wouldn't well, it, it might have been, but we took a little break there for a while. Yeah, I had some uh, family things I had to attend to. If you guys care to know what those are, go ahead and check out the website. And uh, I actually wrote on there what happened, so check it out there. And uh, let's see, so what have you been doing? Oh, well, a bunch of us had uh, crunch at work, too, and with projects... But um, what I've been doing, I've been playing a lot of Xbox 360. I actually got to play Gears of War with one of our no, listeners. Wait a minute, Tom. Uh, I noticed for a period there that you weren't playing a lot of Xbox 360. Did something happen? Were you on vacation? Or what, what occurred? No, uh, my Xbox 360 broke. Oh, really? <laughs> really? That's crazy. Because in in I, just the same way that yours did. Yeah, because I remember a few episodes ago, it seems like just yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> and my 360 broke. What were you saying? It wasn't going to happen, or what? No, I, I kind of thought, you know, what are what would the odds? But be you were that asking me like, where would... did I put my power supply? How did I have my TV? Yeah, I thought maybe there was some sort of fluke thing, like you had it somewhere where it overheat, or like you know what I mean. Like I just didn't think it would be that likely that both of us would have the Xbox 360 die on us. But then I mentioned the forum and all the people on the forum, and you like yeah, yeah poo pooed that and yeah. uh, pushed it aside, but. Uh, and so. then, and then the reality came crashing down one day when I turned on my Xbox 360 and I got the red lights of doom, and it wouldn't do anything. Yeah. And so. I unplugged it and plugged it back in and tried some more, and it's like, no, it's dead. Did you try wrapping it in a towel, perhaps? <laughs> that was one of the solutions. <laughs> Have you read those said? Yeah. yeah. No, I didn't. Help? I didn't try all the crazy solutions. And there's one about a hair dryer. Right. 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 Use anyway. No, I didn't try that. I, I called Xbox 360 support, and I went through the steps that they said to do, and it didn't work, of course. So I basically sent it in to get uh, it re- uh, repaired or replaced. Mm-hmm. And actually, they were very good about taking the, it back and sending me a new one. I well, think it should it was, be by now. They're probably mm-hmm. pretty used to it. I think it was within a week, though. I mean, it was pretty fast turnaround. I mean, I, of course, I'd prefer to, for it not to have broken in the first place. Right. But if it did, you know, I was pretty happy with the way that they fixed right. it. So did you it, purchase an extended warranty? After yeah, I did. So it was a warranty repair. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So do, do we know anyone who's had their 360 last since they bought Our it? Our work. Or, we, the or one at work <laughs> hasn't failed yet. But do you suppose oh, that's because yeah. it doesn't, doesn't get used as much? Or? I use it quite a bit, Tom, oh, i got to okay. say. Do you really? Well, not really. <laughs> I played Geometry Wars on it. That's yeah. Funny. So I guess so. We're two for three. Two out of three have broken. Right? All, right. All right. So uh, last time we did part one of the Nintendo uh, history, but we're not doing part two tonight. And the reason we're not is uh, looking back on it, uh, the Super NES and N64. There's just so much there that I kind of want to devote a full podcast to those because the Super NES is really my favorite console of all time. Cool. So um, so we'll do that in the future. Uh, instead, tonight, we're going to look at a book that I read during the, our little hiatus called The Ultimate History of Video Games by Stephen L. Kent. I've read this book many, many times, but this time when I read it, I went through it ahead and uh, marked the pages, like things that I thought were really interesting. Cool. And so that's what we're going to cover in the uh, Retro Respect section. And there's not going to be any discussion segment tonight like we normally have. And the reason is, 
We've been off for a while. We've been playing a lot of games. We're going to spend the time to talk about those games and give them their due. So we've got a lot to talk about. That's right. And it's going to be a pretty decent-sized show, so let's get it started. Onward and upward. It's time for what we're currently playing. What are you playing, Tom? <laughs> well, like I said in the intro, I've been playing a lot of Xbox 360. Um, I've been playing Tiger Woods Golf, which is really a fun game. It's a, it's a good casual game you can play a little bit, and it's good to play with other people, too. I uh, recently had a friend over from out of town, and we sat around playing that game. And It's a game where you can just sort of play it while you're hanging out and talking did, and did stuff. Did you hit anybody in the uh, privates? No, I didn't do that like that video. <laughs> yeah, that's a great video. If you no. guys haven't seen it, you should check um, that out. But the thing that I love about Tiger Woods Golf is the way you can make a very, very detailed avatar that looks just like yourself. And so if you get um, a bunch of people playing and they've all customized their avatars, it's really funny looking because it's like you are all there in the, at the golf course. It's just like the me on the Wii. Except more detailed than that. Right. But yeah, yeah. It, it's really cool. Um, the game I really love right now is Viva Pinata, and really? I, I almost didn't get this game. I I almost thought it was too much of a little kids game, or at least that's what it looked like. But I gotta say that's a really fun game. It reminds me more of Sim City or something like that, where uh, it's a very complicated simulation of this whole ecosystem with different animals, and the animals have a food chain and they they breed, and it's just really cool. And there's always something happening. It's just uh, and they have little romance yeah. dances. Yeah, they have little romance. You can breed them, and you can yeah. get new animals to come. And it's really cool. Doesn't Amy really like this? Yeah, she she did like it. She kind of got got bored of it out for, okay. after a while. I mean, one of her complaints was the limited garden size. Like you get your garden, and then you have to start removing stuff. Like you can't put any more right. fence in because you have too many items in your garden, mm. and it's just kind of mm. yeah. I wish like, it were a little bit bigger, but on the other hand, if it were too big, it'd be hard to see what all is going on there. So yeah, but I think it's a technical limitation, right? It could be yeah. yeah so uh, I also played. I got from Game like Tony Hawk Project Eight. And played that for a little while. That's pretty good. Uh, it's not a game I'd probably buy, but to rent it for a while is pretty fun. So and, what did you like about it? Um, I just like, you know, I've always liked the Tony Hawk series. There's nothing super new in it except for the uh, dual analog flip stuff. But um, I just like seeing it in high def. So the dual analog flip, can you kind of explain that for our listeners if they haven't played the game? Yeah, what happens is when you do a... There's a new way to do flip tricks is you go up in the air and then you can go in this mode where each analog joystick controls one of your feet. And so you you flick it in one direction and the, the skateboard will start to spin underneath you and you control the rotation and then you can throw your other foot in there to stop it or to start a new rotation. So you can kind of make up your own very complex flip tricks. It's really fun. It also goes into slow motion when that happens. It makes it a little easier to see what's going on. So I played the demo of this game, and it, it was very cool. It looked great, but it seemed, you know, I haven't played a Tony Hawk game for a long time. So to me, it was almost kind of unapproachable at first. Do you think it is, like, if you're a new player, do you think it's something that oh, anybody... Oh, that's, that's a good point. I don't know, because I've played it. I've played those games so much that I already know how it all works. Right. It's kind of like so, Madden, though. Like, people, if they haven't yeah. been playing Madden, they, they grab the new Madden, and they're like, what the heck is going on? You know, there's so many buttons, and it's a little bit right. too complex. you got to spend hours reading the manual before you play the game. And exactly. I just, you know, that just doesn't happen. <laughs> right. I don't know. Exactly. I, it's hard for me to put myself in the shoes of somebody who's never played a Tony Hawk game, but... But um, that might be a factor. Another thing I really like about it is it's 
what they've done in this game is it's all one big world. So you never have to go to a screen where like you wait while the, some different level loads. No you, loading you screens. Ju- you just skate from area to area to area in this really big town. And there's ways to unlock new areas, but it's still all one continuous world. And I really like that part of it a lot. So besides the flip, you know, using the dual analog on that, what else is different about the game? To tell you the truth, there's not that much that's super different. If you've played the series, you pretty much know how this game works. There's certain kinds of tricks you can do. Um, you know, you do the grind tricks, you do the grab tricks and the flip tricks, um, plus manuals. Um, there's uh, there's not that much new. It's pretty much a variation on stuff that's been in the other games, but just seeing it in high def and seeing having it be a continuous environment is pretty cool. Cool. Um, I also got Battle Stations Midway for the 360, which is a World War II um, sort of combination real-time strategy and um, and arcade action battle game. I downloaded the demo, and I, I didn't really get it, I guess. I mean, it seemed <laughs> like you know I was expecting an action game, and it definitely wasn't action, and I didn't stick with it that long. And it was only multiplayer, so I, I went oh, in, and yeah. I was like... That probably was real confusing. Confused then. right away, and I was like, uh, I don't know about this game, um, so... I'll tell you how this works. I have the full version, and it has a really long tutorial. So I I got this game. I sat down. I started playing it. My girlfriend went to the store or something, and she came back, and she looked at the screen, and she was like, you're still in the tutorial after an hour. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, it's long. There's a lot they have to show you because the game's very detailed. There's, like, ways to repair your different vehicles. Like, you have battleships, and you have planes, and you have submarines and there's all sorts of different weapons and and different tactics and stuff it's it's very complex and and uh there's sort of a real-time strategy element to it where you can control multiple vehicles but then you can also jump into one particular one and take the controls of that and take command of that um i haven't gotten super far in the game but i like it i really like the way it looks i like the way the water looks if you're gonna if you're gonna have a game that's about naval battles you gotta have good looking water and islands and and ships and stuff and they really look cool and you can see the little guys walking around on the decks of the ships and it's very detailed it makes me realize that you know most of the time in a in a game like that when you see a battleship or something it it looks kind of like almost an icon Right. Rather than like the real thing. But these look like the real thing. It's really cool. So explain to me, is it an action or a strategy or what What the heck is it? It's sort of a hybrid because you can k- take control of a single plane or submarine and you know you can fly that plane and do a strafing run on an enemy ship or something. But then you can also give sort of high-level strategic commands to your units and tell them to move to a certain area, kind of like you would in a real-time strategy game. So, I mean, I understand it from a multiplayer perspective where you could have two teams battling each other, and I assume that's what happens, right? And people take different responsibilities. But what's a single-player game, then? Well, the single-player is the same thing. I mean, you can... Imagine a real-time strategy game where you can also have the option of, of jumping into a particular unit and controlling just that in an action sort of view. But are there, like, scenarios you have different yeah, there's scenarios? Yeah, okay, there's scenarios battle. Through. Yeah, and, like, there's there's different scenario tracks. Like, there's one that actually recreates the, the history of uh, World War II in the Pacific. But then there's also little smaller tracks where you're just doing submarine missions or you're just doing airplane missions and stuff like that. So That's cool. That's kind of cool. Um, played a little Rainbow Six Vegas also. What do you think about that? I like that. Um, I was really into it for a while. I haven't played it in a while. I'm not sure why. I guess it's just because it gets sort of repetitive after a while. Right. But um, I, I liked it. I liked the. Uh, the I liked way the it demo a lot. 
I, but I didn't buy the release one yet. I'm kind of waiting because I just picked up Crackdown, which I'll talk about in a bit. But oh, I played the demo. Of Crackdown. Yeah, yeah, and um, so I, I and I finished Gears, so I was like, you know, I don't want to play Rainbow because it seems a lot like Gears, you know, and I, I wanted something else, so I chose right. Crackdown. But and I, I did play Gears of War, like I said, with one of our listeners, multiplayer. How'd that work? It was fun. It was a lot of fun. Were you playing co-op then? Yeah, co-op. Did you finish it or? No, I still haven't finished it. Oh. And uh, the, the other game... So disappointing. The other game, uh, finally, is I've been playing a lot of new Super Mario on the Nintendo DS because it's a game I can just just uh, quickly pick up and play for a few minutes um, when I don't want to fire up the 360 and get heavily involved in something. Cool. And that's about it. All right. Woody, what have you been playing? I'm still playing on my on my brand new Xbox. Uh, I'm still playing uh, Xbox Mid- Classic, Midway Arcade Classic. <laughs> yeah, so pl- playing a lot of Joust, um, Joust Two, some Tubin, Defender. Tubin, um, yeah, nice. Tubin, yeah, a lot of fun with those. Good times. Um, I am. I'm planning to get a Wii. I'm looking forward to having a Wii soon. I That's still, cool. I'm still not seeing them in the store. Where, but where's your? No, Wii? I haven't either. I, I see plenty of PlayStation Three. I lost no Wii's. That's right. <laughs> yeah, no, have you been looking? You've been looking. I, have I, I haven't been like doing the hard target search, but yeah. I've been to Target a few times and looked, right. and and just haven't seen you them see on the any shelf. PlayStation Threes. Yeah, I, I oh, have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing is, I got excited. I saw a review the other day on some. Um, I'm embarrassed to admit, I still watch G4 every once in a yeah. while, and I saw, and they did a review of Bully, yeah. and yeah. they were just could not stop talking about it. So I'm going to pick a Bully, yeah, um, this game. week, and hopefully I'll be able yeah, to do that, that for you next next. You know, it's movie. not long, and God of War Two comes out, so oh yeah, yeah. so you'll be playing that probably too. Yeah, old school. <laughs> yep. So that's it. All right, Dave, what have you been playing? Well, I've been looking for my Wii as well. <laughs> haven't found your Wii I have yet. not found it I that, that is what I said I would get next epi- or last episode I was going to get a Wii cause I was so, so excited a couple months ago last episode yeah, couple, <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> time's gone by and uh, you know I refuse to wait in line at 6am at Target to get the Wii I tell him every time if you, if you go at 6am this day you'll be able to get one yeah Yep. And he goes when they open, and he I, never gets I one. I walked right in, and, and I, I watched all- the 15 people who were waiting there since <laughs> the previous night get their Wii's, and I didn't get mine. Previous night, dude. they got to get there at 6 a.m. Yeah. That's not previous night. It's not, That's well, like the, the early in the morning. Guy maybe. number 15 was, had, I asked him, well, so how long have you been here? I got here at 6, he said. So... <laughs> I, so I, re- I refuse to buy one until I can either walk into Target and buy one uh, and see it there, or uh, get it on the you know online. Now I'm, I'm sticking to my guns. <laughs> I don't even want to go to Target. I want some guy to just walk past my house and, and offer say, "Do you it want to a Wii?" Yeah. <laughs> so I, they I, do that on the commercial, don't they? <laughs> Driving around in the car, going to everybody's house. Um. So and I also there was a there was a little two weeks while I was gone in Thailand. Not that it's really game related, but it took me out of the circulation. Did for you a play while. any games in Thailand? Did I play any games? No. Video games. Video games. Yeah. <laughs> I, no. <laughs> but uh, when I got back, uh, Chris had just ordered and received at work a, a new old Apple IIe. That's right. I already had an Apple IIe, but um, there was a brand a- new one. Apple IIe on uh, eBay, and the guy had kind of bad credit. I mean, bad uh, yeah, feedback. Bad feedback. He didn't put a picture up. And he didn't put a picture up, but it said Apple IIe system in box. So I bought it, and it came in the original boxes. It was pretty exciting. Unopened? No, it had been <laughs> opened. Open, but it was, in, it was original Apple boxes, all the, yeah. the original Apple styrofoam. Yeah, everything's sure. there. Uh, a lot of the original manuals. 
So, uh, so I've been playing some old school games. Been playing some Load Runner on the Apple II. All right, Load Runner. Yeah, the best game of all time. Yeah, it's pretty fun. It's really fun. I'm. I'm. I'm uh, Have you built your own levels? No, but I'm gonna. I've, I've ordered. I'm gonna. I'm waiting to bid on an e. Um, a uh, an Apple II e. this weekend. Yeah. Uh, and it'll come out. I'll, the bid will happen before the podcast comes out, so I can just go, go ahead and say that, and no one's going to outbid me. Um, <laughs> and I uh, also been playing some Oregon Trail. Played Oregon Trail at work. Everyone's very excited. Which Oregon crop. Trail are you talking about? The- this is uh, was the later one. Yeah, right? it was the well, 1985 okay. version. It wasn't. It wasn't the Apple II one. You know, it's Apple II. Yeah, we played on the Apple II, but, but it's it not the, the text mode. It's mostly text mode. It's mostly text. Oh, yeah. it is. Okay, but the, so the, the main difference was there was when, during the hunting scenes. When the deer run, I remember the deer like prancing across the screen, and you had to shoot. It just it was timing based, right? Yeah, it was timing based. But that's and, not the way. And this now one it's is. like a two D map where deer yeah. and bear and gorillas. Oh, that out. is the later one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. this is eighty five. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. that's pretty recent. That's eighty five. <laughs> this is only twenty two years ago. That's so. the advanced version. Of- <laughs> Okay. And uh, and some game by the same company as Oregon Trail called Odell Lake. Yeah, MECC is a company. Remember Odell the Lake? Oh yeah, I Minnesota Education, which is something. also an Oregon landmark. Yeah, so I they must love Oregon. Yeah, I guess so. And the thing is, uh, Dave's I gotta say, first time Oregon Trail, he made it. He made yeah. it to the end, yeah. and I was the only person that survived. So I Chris, just want to say that you were in his Chris, party. Chris yes, I yeah. was in his party. Yeah. He had two Franks. Two they Franks. both died. Both died. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it was because he had you in the group, and I would, I would also like to say that um, I did this. I ha, my Apple II here. I have color monitor, but this one came with the classic green, green. screen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but um, but that wasn't good enough. So today we hooked up an LCD monitor, like a twenty-one inch like to a it. Dull so LCD. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that supports comp composite, composite input. input. Yeah, yeah. That's so we've been cool. playing with that. So Dave, what do you do in Odell Lake? What game? What do you do in that game? Well, it's an edutainment game. One of the original edutainment games. Dave got eaten. I chose, to be a, I chose to be a salmon. And, uh, <laughs> so and you get, can be a salmon? I was a salmon. I, you get to choose different... Well, the, the, the game throws different uh, scenarios at you, like a heron's going to come, is coming. What do you do? So were you made into dive sushi? Deep. So or to did, choose your own adventure. It's kind of, yeah, you had, you had four choices. Dive deep, dive shallow... Try and eat it or try and scare it away. You could try to eat the heron? Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you're the fish? Yeah. Does that ever work? No. no. <laughs> That's the agitated part. That's how you learn. That's how you That's learn. learning. Okay. Yeah. Remember, okay. the salmon does not eat the heron. Okay. But apparent, but when I, the, the trout came up and asked me what I wanted to do, so I said, decided I'm, I'm going to go scare it away. <laughs> no, apparently, the trout was bigger than me and <laughs> swallowed me whole. Wow. <laughs> so but, what's the object of the game? Just to survive? Or I what? think so, because I didn't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. I didn't. Yeah. It was, so, that, that, and that's what... Uh, I also wanted to say that we had a huge peanut gallery for Oregon Trail. Yeah, oh, and, there was and, a ton of people And watching. everyone seemed to have experience at it. Right? Oh, yeah, because everybody's played Frank, in fact, even though he died twice in the game, he did make the suggestion to caulk the, uh, the, and float it across the Snake River, yep. and that worked. It worked. It worked great. <laughs> And uh, Andy was going crazy with all. He said, "Don't be a banker. Don't be. Or no, you got to do a farmer." <laughs> like, dude, how do you? How recently have you played this? You got to know this guy at our work. His name's Andy. And like, no matter what game you pick, from what generation he has played it, and he knows, and he knows all the strategies, heart. dude. <laughs> if it's Zelda, he'll tell you, "Go here, go here, to this." And we're playing Oregon Trails. Oh well, you wouldn't want to no, be a don't banker. be the banker. <laughs> I want as the banker, by the way. And he goes, "Oh, by the way, you want to buy a lot of bullets, and you want to use a couple. You don't want to shoot those because if you shoot too many, you can't carry all the food." Which he was right about that. He was all right. That's, and I we think shot he... a couple bears. We could only carry 100 pounds. It was like 20-some 20, 20 hundred pounds of food left now, to waste. When I used to play Oregon Trail, I had this thing where I, I would actually see how quickly I could get all my party to die. 
And, <laughs> and, and my record was I got everybody to die within 11 miles of starting. That's good, Tom. And you know how you do that? What you do is you buy only wagon wheels, and it makes your, your load so heavy that you can only go like 100 yards per day. <laughs> and then so you, you basically die of starvation when you're still very close to where you started out. Oh, you shouldn't have told me that. I was going to try. I was going to try and beat your record. And now I know. Now you know the secret. I know the secret. Well, there might be a way to do it even better than that, though. So see if you can beat the 11 miles. All right, All right as yeah. soon as I get my Apple IIe. <laughs> All right. Don't outbid me. <laughs> All right, so uh, so what I've been doing... Uh, one of the first... I guess one of the things I've been doing... I haven't been playing as much modern games. I haven't played my 360 as much. I've been playing it some, but not as much. I've been really on this kind of retro kick lately, and playing a lot of retro stuff. So the first thing I think I did was hook up my Amiga, All right. which I hadn't hooked up for a long time. Um, got that hooked up, and one of the things I found, you know, is I didn't have that many games or anything. So like the Apple II, I wanted to find a way to transfer images over to my Amiga. So I found a program similar to the one I have on the Apple II. It's called Amiga Explorer, and it's made by, how do you pronounce that? Cloanto. Cloanto or something like that. It's kind of similar to what I have for the Apple II, and that you connect it over some uh, null modem cable... And you run a program on the Amiga, you run the transfer program on the PC, and it'll just transfer the image across and write it, you know, to the whatever floppies in the drive. So it's pretty sweet. You can transfer all Amiga images across uh, across that uh, null modem cable. And the cool thing is a lot of Amiga games, like the Cinemaware games, if you remember those, Defender of the Crown, right. King of Chicago, games like Defender those. of the Crown's great. Dude, it's awesome. But uh, those games are actually free. Uh, if you go to Cinemaware's oh, really? site, they just give them away. So I downloaded all the Cinemaware stuff. I've been playing that. Um, it's pretty cool. So some of the games I've been playing is uh, Silkworm. Do you remember that game? So Amy's little brother comes over, so we like to play games that you can play together. Silkworm, one person's on the ground is a Jeep shooting, and the other person's in the air flying and oh, shooting. Oh, I remember this, yeah. It, it was an arcade game. Yeah, yeah. It's a blast on the Amiga. It's a great game. Um, the Defender of the Crown, obviously. If you guys don't know what Defender of the Crown is, do you want to explain it, Tom? Well, it's sort of like a, a medieval um, Robin Hood-like setting. Right, exactly. And, and so there's different little mini-games that you play, like uh, shooting the bow and arrow, jousting. Right. Um, but the whole game is to basically claim territory, right? And there's right. these other competing factions of, of people, right? And you get to pick who you want to be, and then you collect different land, and... Yeah, you have to go raid their castles and use the catapult, which was actually right. the coolest part I thought of the game. So uh, Amy's little brother and I played a ton of that. We played Shadow of the Beast, which on the Amiga, that was like the game that was kind of the bomb graphics-wise. People said, oh, Shadow of the Beast, great graphics. Gameplay? Not so much, <laughs> but great graphics, so I played that. Uh, we played the Chaos Engine, which we actually played tonight a little bit. Yeah, we played that tonight. That game is fun. That's It's a top-down sort of shooter game. Uh, you said, I think, it reminds you of Gauntlet. It's it, a lot like Gauntlet. It's like Gauntlet. It's really but fun. But it's got really good sound, too. And yeah. I like the voice acting. I mean, it's, there's not much voice, but the voice, when he does talk, it's very, it's pretty mm-hmm. cool. Uh, I played Gods, um, which is another kind of uh, side-scrolling type adventure-type game, which is really cool. Um, and then Marble Madness was a great game on the Amiga. It looks just like the arcade yeah. game. And one of the cool things about the Amiga, if you guys have never seen one, is the sound is really good. And Marble yeah, Madness... It and it's synthesized sound. For, for right. its time. For its time. It's, just, it's not oh, any wave files. That's the cool right. thing about it. It's all synthesized. And the cool thing was um, Marble Madness had really good sound in the arcade. And they were able to replicate that on the home version on the Amiga. So it's, it's a really fun game to play. So 
in addition to getting this cable working and buying this program and being able to transfer these images on the Amiga, I also uh, installed the chip, a fatter Agnes chip, in my Amiga. And what that, yeah, I, don't know, I don't know where they got the name, <laughs> but I guess the Agnes chip itself kind of controls access to video memory. It kind of decides if you if you want to access video memory or whatever. And um, the fatter Agnes has a mode where it can switch between PAL and NTSC. So with that, you can play the PAL games on the Amiga. What which is, PAL games are there? Tons. Like most of the really good games are PAL. Really? Based. It was, it was, it was uh, popular in Europe. Huge in Europe. Yeah. Like a lot of the games are PAL Amiga based. Was, yeah. So, um, and the problem is if you run, try to run those at like uh, 60 hertz, there's, there's timing based code in there. So it'll actually break. It won't even run. <laughs> wow. So mm. with this chip, you can, you can run the PAL game. So I've been playing a ton on my Amiga. It's been awesome. So the other thing uh, I've done is, you know, again, in the, the spirit of retro gaming, um, been playing with my Commodore 64 quite a bit. So some of the games I've been playing, uh, International Karate Championship by Epix. Actually, I think it was like a System 3 game, but Epix distributed it. And it's very much like Karate Champ. If you remember Karate the Champ, arcade, the arcade Champ. game. Yeah. So again, mm-hmm. Amy's little brother and I have been playing that. Also, The Way of the Fist is similar. It's another karate game. We've been playing that. And then a game, I don't know if you guys remember this, it was called Forbidden Forest. No, what's that? It's, it was a really weird game, but it was really cool. You're this archer guy, and there's like different enemies coming at you, like spiders and stuff, and you walk kind of back and forth and shoot them with your arrow. Now, the huh. cool thing about this is it had parallax scrolling on the Commodore 64. Oh. So in the background, there's multiple <laughs> layers moving in. So I remember that as for, for a kid, I thought that was really, when I was a kid, I thought that was really cool. So playing that was, was pretty cool. So the other stuff, other things I've been doing, you know, it's kind of Commodore related, is I've been really watching Craigslist a lot, and I've kind of set up RSS feeds to, you know, see as soon as something shows up to, uh, to give me a mail and, and notify me, so then I know to go ahead and look and see what's available. And so I've picked up a ton of Commodore stuff recently, really, really cheap. You seem to have a, a collection growing, exactly, like more yeah. than you'll ever use in your life. That's right. I have, I have like four working Commodore 64s now, a couple 128s, and like 10 disk drives, a couple of those that are the... And you still don't want to share. 1581 drive, no. So, <laughs> but I mean, I, there's such good deals. For for example, the other day I picked up a computer 64 that's working two drives and a couple hundred disks for $20. Yeah. And, uh, for $20? $20, yeah. And it included a couple, and they look like they've hardly been used at all, Epix 500 XJ joysticks, a couple of uh, cartridges, like fast load cartridge, a cartridge called the Final Cartridge, which is one of those cartridges where it would uh, you could I don't know if you guys remember this. You could load a game, click the cartridge, and it would save the memory that was resonant to disk, and then load it back. So it would kind of snapshot what was in memory. There was a couple modems as well, and so then that kind of got me going on another tangent because I had now I had a twelve hundred baud modem. <laughs> so the first thing I was thinking is I wonder if there's any BBSs I could call. So uh, do. You, you want to explain what a BBS is, Tom? Sure. Well, a BBS is a bulletin board system. Before the and uh, before well before the World Wide Web, and before all that stuff was popular, what people would do is you, if you wanted to uh, access data on some other computer, <clears throat> you'd you'd dial up on your telephone to the number with your your acoustic modem, or it, that was the really old days, the acoustic modems, yeah. or your or your more modern sleek modem. But they were all Hayes compatible <clears throat> modems, right? Yeah. And uh, you'd basically get into this system. Now, bulletin board systems were text-based, 
And uh, they except had, for Commodore had some graphics. Commodore dude. had Petsky some graphics. Yeah, yeah. Some. There's still text underneath. No, well, dude, you could you could do really good pictures with Petsky <laughs> graphics. I have to say, dude. But it's, typically, the way it would work is you'd have a text-based menuing system where you could, you know, send and receive messages, kind of like email or something, or, or going to a news group or going to a message board. Um, you could usually upload and download files, and so people would share different programs that they had written. Like, and, what kind of programs would they share, Tom? Well, sometimes it was just like little demos and, and games that people had written. Um, of course, there were BBSs that traded pirated software and uh, um, and uh, instructions on how to make bombs. <laughs> Actually, you know what's funny is there was this weird uh, dichotomy. I think like a lot of the Apple-based BBSs, for some reason, they had all the the plans for making bombs and stuff. <laughs> Did you notice that? It's like because Apple, you know, they didn't really have the cool <laughs> graphics when you dial up and stuff, so they focused on bombs. And, like every time I go to an Apple BBS, they'd have like you know the hacker text files on how to make these bombs and stuff, and how to freak, and how to, yeah. yeah, how to freak, yeah. phone freaking and stuff. Yeah. And a friend of mine actually. Um, he built one of those bombs. You know, it was like no. I'm he built one. He built one. Of yeah, the he bombs. built one, and he put it in a bottle, right? It, uh-huh. Which I guess the instructions said. And I'm like, dude, the instructions said to put it in a bottle, like a bottle, dude, to make like a huge explosion or something. So he did this, <laughs> and he puts yeah. it out in the middle of the road, and it doesn't work. <laughs> so now what do you do, story. right? You go pick it up and so okay, and, and look exactly. Ahead. That's what he did. He went and picked it up, and it went off, dude. Yeah. After he picked it up, yeah, in his, hand, in his dude, hand, dude, he had and like. 48 stitches. So he had like broken arm. glass flying All everywhere. All over his arm. Dude. He's lucky he didn't lose his eyes. Exactly. Or his exactly. Yeah. So, oh, kids, wow. don't. That's BBSs were dangerous, apparently. <laughs> now, I've, I've heard some experts say that a lot of the uh, a lot of the recipes in the so called like the anarchist cookbook, which is the classic bomb making exactly out there, the one, yeah. they say you know while a lot of them are out there are kind of real and maybe used. There's there's some um, it, it, recipes in there that seem almost clearly designed to maim or kill the person doing this. Like, <laughs> they're, they're, they're ultimate practical jokes. So it's really, it was dangerous to try them out there because a lot of the stuff really would work, but a lot of the stuff seemed like it was designed to backfire on you, apparently. <laughs> right. So I guess, yeah, that, thanks, Tom. That's pretty good. So the one thing I would also say is that you got to realize that these are BBSs that run on a phone line. And typically, it's one phone line. So yeah. So if, usually, there's like yeah. one connection at a time. Right. So if there's a really popular BBS, what we you would use is this thing called an auto dial program. And so you'd sit there and you just hear your modem, trying to connect. Right. Busy, it would just busy, try over and over, over and over. And you'd sit in the room, and I'd always I had two Commodores, so I'd be playing a game on one and listening for it to connect. And as soon as it connected, I'd jump up and go, "Oh, I got the BBS!" So then you could get you on. You had like 40 minutes to download whatever you wanted. Exactly. And, yeah, they usually limited your time because right. they didn't want one person to monopolize and you also it all. Had credits, right? Right, and you could oh, you could get you could get credits yeah. by uploading files. Well, that's what I hated. I always wanted to download games and such, but they always, <laughs> most of them had ratios, so you had to upload something first. But so it was usually a pretty decent ratio, like three to one or. Something. I don't know, but I always had like one file that I'd always just upload yeah. whatever it was to. So I could it was download. probably like ASCII graphics, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, exactly. The Anarchist <laughs> Cookbook, probably. Yeah. So. uh one thing you could do too is chat with the person who ran the BBS. It was like oh, yeah. chatting with the sysop. Yeah. So that was kind of some BBSs took two phone lines. So you could like, chat with someone else yeah. online. Oh, some had like four and eight. Yeah, they dude, would have. are you serious? Oh, yeah, yeah, there were, there were like <laughs> fancy <laughs> ones. That was the original MySpace or the original, <laughs> <I was laughs> the original yeah. MySpace. Was well, there was getting... also networks that you could connect to that were like on these supercomputers. I'm sure, like the oh yeah, like CompuServe, CompuServe, yeah, and yeah. Quantum Down. Link. Dow Jones the, had one. P, uh, Commodore one. There's yeah. also Delphi and Genie. Yeah, right. Yep. Yep. 
Yeah, so those were, those were the cool services. You get on there, you could chat with people from all over the world. Right. So one of the cool thing, I mean, I want to have a whole segment on BBSs at some point because I think it's really interesting. But just another thing I want to say is that the cool thing, I think the big differentiator between BBSs and kind of what we have now with the World Wide Web is it was really local. Like, you didn't want to pay long distance to call you know, outside of your area code. So you'd call all these local BBSs. You'd talk with people in the, you know, the message boards that were local and you'd kind of develop relationships with these people and then you'd meet them like at some point, right? Right, because chances are they live near you, especially if you're in a major city. And I know with the Commodore stuff, which I was into, they'd always have like a monthly pizza party. So everybody from all the BBSs would go to this (laughs) pizza party uh, and, you know, they'd bring all their computers and stuff, and you'd meet all these people. So it was really kind of a locally based thing. Yeah. It was really cool. And so. a lot of the BBSs, probably the majority of them, were not really commercial ventures. They were more hobbies that, you know, people right, were running right. these BBSs out of their house. Right. Well, and there was the thrill of discovering the, the bulletin boards because there was no Google for bulletin boards back right. then. Right. You had to, like, you know, mm. some would have lists of other bulletin board phone numbers. Right, but exactly. It was like a lot of times you get word of mouth to find a really cool bulletin board or something like that, one that wasn't busy all the time. Right. The thing that kind of blows my mind about BBS's thinking back now is that, you know, they, there was no hyperlinks. There was no way for it to refer to some file that was on some other BBS. You were basically limited to what was right there on that BBS. Yeah. So it would be it would be kind of like, you know, going to the web, but you could only go, go to one website, and you had to stay there. And then if you wanted to leave, it was like this big hassle. And right. <laughs> go to a different page. Yeah. But, I don't know, I, I really liked calling BBS's. It was kind of my thing back in the day. Sorry, I gotta say it again. But, uh, but I really did enjoy it. So anyway, I got this computer, this one I picked up for $20, and it had a couple modems. So I started searching around the internet, and there's no more BBSs. You know, no, no more dial-up BBSs, I should say. I found one. It was called Cottonwood BBS, and he said that he's the only person that's running a dial-up Commodore BBS in the world, at least that he knows. <laughs> so I went ahead and I dialed in, connected, and it was kind of cool. You know, I, got, I saw the Petski graphics, and if you guys don't know what Petski is... On the Commodore, underneath the normal keys, there's like other like kind of graphical. Yeah. They're like know, little shapes, little right. like different lines and bars, and, and stuff. you can change the color and stuff. So you can develop these kind of rudimentary pictures. But people got really good. You know, it's it's kind of similar to like ANSI type graphics on on other computers, but not that high resolution. And so I actually talked to the Sysop for a while, and he was he was from Oregon originally, <laughs> oh. so which was kind of crazy. So we actually knew of some of the same BBSs, and that that was pretty cool. But um, after that, I was like, I don't want to keep paying long distance to call this one BBS. There's got to be more going on. <laughs> so I started searching around, and I found this whole uh, ring of Telnet-based BBSs. And so how does that work? It's weird. Uh, basically, <laughs> what it is is um, you can connect to these Telnet-based BBSs through your old Commodore. And I was like, I, I don't understand how this works. Does a Commodore know how to Telnet? What's going on here? So there's a website, uh, Petski.com. And they have a bunch of information on these Telnet BBSs. So what happens is you run a piece of software on your PC and you connect the Commodore or any other kind of retro computer that doesn't have, you know, um, IP type or TCP IP connectivity to it through an RS-232 style connection. Old style serial. And the, the thing that's running on the PC emulates a Hayes modem. So the computer, the retro computer that's talking to it, thinks it's connected straight to a Hayes modem. <laughs> an external Hayes modem, yeah. Right, an external Hayes modem. So um, you can type in like ATDT, which was attention dial tone, and instead of putting in a phone number, which is what you would do, you put in like a domain name or an IP address, and that's what you connect to. And the BBS that you're connecting to has the same kind of setup. So they have something running on a PC that 
gets a telnet connection and converts to uh, <laughs> you know Hayes type communication and it talks back to a, to a, a Commodore on that side or or something in exactly yeah. so unfortunately um, the Commodore 64 itself out of the box doesn't have an RS-232 style connection right. so again on petski.com they give you schematics and diagrams for building an RS-232 <laughs> type connection so you had to build it so I had to build it so Amy's little brother and I as a project we ordered the parts from DigiKey they came, we soldered it all together, and there's like different levels of uh, interface that you can build. Um, if you want one that just connects to BBSs, it only you know partially implements all of the modem type. All the protocol. Protocol. Line protocol, yeah. Line, line protocol, yeah. exactly. And that's what we built. So it's a single chip, a 7404 chip. It's really easy to build. Uh, connected it, and we were able to connect to these BBSs. So uh, we were browsing. I think we connected to like a dozen different Commodore BBSs. Um, and I got to see all the Petsky graphics. There's files on there. There's message boards. They're, some, they're even somewhat active. You know, people connecting to these. It's very nostalgic. So if you had a Commodore 64 um, and you don't have one, you should pick one up and try this. If you're into BBSs, it's, it's a total blast. Chris so, has got a lot of fun out of this, obviously. Exactly. Yeah. So the other thing I did is I was like, well, if I can do this for my Commodore, I wonder if I can do it for my Amiga. So I tried it on my Amiga, you know, because I'm an RS-232 connection, and it worked. And there's a bunch of telnetable Amiga BBSs. Yeah. So And they have ANSI graphics, so it's very cool. Uh, so I've been having a blast doing that. And I even, even in fact, I got my Apple II to connect. But there's no Apple II BBSs <laughs> that are telnetable, so you can connect to other BBSs. So. Hmm. Did you say you had some kind of gopher interface working with your Apple II? Oh, that's the other thing. Some yeah. guy has written on the Commodore 64... There's actually there's yeah that's the one thing I should mention. There's also a web browser some people have written for the uh, Commodore 64. So with this I was able to connect and do browsing the web, but it's much like Gopher, right? Yeah, but it'll yeah. actually it'll show images and if you click on it it'll scan it line by line and show it to you. So it's kind of crazy. So for the younger people, explain what Gopher is. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, it Gopher is a pre World Wide Web service, and it was just a lot like a BBS. You choose like you it was kind of like hierarchical, links, hierarchical yeah. menuing. But you, you you would have to choose like between one two option one two three four go right. down and go down. So one this level. is more like links, I would say, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of, yeah. Which is kind of more of a text based browser, space. right? But this is actually connected to web pages, yeah. so okay, that's so cool. it's more like links. Pretty cool. Yeah. So that's cool. And uh, anyway, there's a lot of people putting time into this, so uh, building the software around the PCs and stuff. So it's kind of crazy, but it's definitely nostalgic. If you're into BBSs, I recommend you try it. You can even try it with Vice, right? Mm-hmm. Or you can even try it with, there's, I think, a CCGMS or something like that for the, or Commodore. There's a version for just Windows if you want to connect to these, but it's not really right, the same as doing right. it through so a Commodore. So Vice is an, a Commodore emulator. Emulator, right, yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and these other things just emulate the terminal this, the, the terminal that would be on the Commodore. Right, on a PC. On a so PC. you just run one program on the yeah. PC you can connect. Right. So that's worth doing too. Anyway, for all that information, check out petski.com. Uh, you'll find a lot of information on it. So the other thing I've been doing retro-based, like I said, I was doing a lot of retro stuff, arcade-based stuff. Space Ace. I got my Space Ace arcade game finally working. All right. It's almost fully restored. Amy's little brother and I put on the vinyl on the sides. We did the T-molding. We put the side art on. We got the marquee all working. Um, We put it all back together. Uh, We sanded down the control panel, but we haven't painted it or applied the overlay because the weather's been kind of crappy here. Um, (laughs) But what I did do is I bought some combo ROMs, and we we soldered it up to the board in Space Ace, so now I can flip between Dragon's Lair and Space Ace with the flip of switch, and I switched the Laserdisc, and uh, you can play either game on it. It's pretty sweet, dude. Does that mean you've got to have two Laserdisc players in there? Well, you just eject and 
You put oh, okay. in a different laser okay. disc and flip a button, but you don't have gotcha. to switch all the ROMs right. before you'd have right. to you like. So yeah, so it's pretty cool. Um, and I also purchased a new Space Ace laser disc, which is new old stock, so it looks looks phenomenal. And uh, <laughs> I've never finished Space Ace, but you know, Dragons are like I talked about. I've done several times, so um, I've been having a blast playing Space Ace. And you haven't finished it yet? Nope. Still working on it. I'm, I'm kind of waiting until I get it completely done, get the control panel done, yeah. and then then do it for the big finale. All right, so what else have I been playing? I've been playing a ton of Dreamcast stuff. All right. If you can believe it. Um, there's been a ton of new shmups, which are uh, shoot 'em ups if you guys don't know that term, shmup. <laughs> now, I didn't know that there were still new games being released for the Dreamcast. Yeah, there's been like several shooters released in the past couple of years, so I, I picked up a couple of those. I've been, I really like Under Defeat. It's a vertical scroller that has really good graphics where you fly a helicopter. Tommy actually played that. Today. Yeah, I played it tonight. It's cool. It's got really, really good uh, fire and explosion and smoke effects. In fact, we were kind of joking that you could probably tell somebody that it was a PS3 game, and they might believe you for we a second. We actually told Woody it was a PS3 game, and he believed us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm That's stupid. not surprising, though. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know if that reflects poorly on the PS3 or what. But anyway, the, Dream, the Dreamcast was, is really a good machine, and I think it's still good. So um, if you like shooters, definitely pick one up... Uh, under defeat, it's cool. I also played a little bit of Soul Calibur, which I still think is one of the best fighting games of all time. The original Soul Calibur on the Dreamcast. Yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely good. And the final game I've been playing on it, Sword of the Berserk. I don't know if you guys remember this game at all. It was a brawler type of game where you had this huge sword. Uh, it's really, you know, kind of brain dead, but it's a fun game. So I've been playing that quite a bit. And it makes me sad to play the Dreamcast because I think it's a console that had a lot of potential that died way too early. It's right after the SNES in terms of my favorite consoles. Hmm. All right, Xbox 360, more modern stuff. I've been playing all the demos. I played Def Jam Icon Demo. Did you guys play that at all? No, I haven't seen it. Oh, between this and the next segment, we have to go down and play Def Jam Icon. You guys can come back and tell what you think of that game. Is it another wrestling game? What is it? Uh, Something like that, Tom. Just wait, you guys can tell. Okay. (laughs) Crackdown, played the Crackdown Demo. I love the Crackdown Demo. I bought Crackdown. Uh, I got got the Halo 3 beta. Now, I played the Crackdown demo, and although I did like it, it seemed to me that this game has gotten so much hype that I expected it to be just like Did you perfect. play co-op? No, I did played Did you play single. co-op? No. Did you play co-op? No. Then it's a problem. You gotta play co-op. <laughs> but, but playing one player, I kind of thought, well, this is okay, but I like Saints Row better. So It's a different game, Tom. Yeah. First of all, you're not a gang member. You're like a superhero, right? You're like yeah. a super cop dude, right? And did you understand the whole building up your stamina yeah. and these different uh, attributes and then being able to jump over buildings and stuff? Right. Did you get... I, I heard this game described as um, being the closest thing to a good Matrix game as you'll get. It's Yeah, that, I could see that. Well, the cool thing is if you have played co-op, which obviously you haven't, <laughs> you can do really cool things. Like, um, for example, you could uh, you know, put a couple people in a car, put bombs underneath the car... Uh, you know, go flying in space and blow it up, and you, you know, you both go along for the ride, or you can you can do all these weird things with multiple players. Just do all kinds of weird things that the game was really never intended to do. So it's fun. If if you should pick it up, at least from GameFly, and we'll do some co-op stuff together, Tom. Okay. And I think I can change your opinion on this game. I will get it from GameFly. And not only that, I got the uh, Halo Three beta. Did, did I mention that the Halo Three beta? How's that? Well, it's not out yet, Tom. But uh, when you it said comes, you got the beta. Oh, do you? So if you buy Crackdown and you're one of the first people to buy it, I don't know how long this goes. You get the Halo Three beta with it. So when they release the beta, you'll be able to play it using your Crackdown disc. Oh, I see what you mean. But uh, since you didn't, you won't. No. 
It's too bad, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, finished Gears on co-op with uh, John. He's been on the podcast before, Doom episode. Uh, so we finished Gears. That was a blast. And we started playing NBA 2K7 online against each other. Having a blast at that. And, and uh, my final uh, 360 news, uh, Jump to Wars. 3.25 million? Whoa. I finally beat Teal. So, right. Teal, I'm waiting. Come on. Bring it on, buddy. Now, did you mentioned this isn't on our notes, but did you mentioned the uh, someone getting 12 million on Geometry Wars and playing 12 for... million, dude. He got 120 million. <laughs> but that was after playing for 24, 24 hours. 24 hours, you said it took him. Wow. 24 hours. But he didn't play it straight. He, uh, he said he played over a week. He kept pausing it. Oh. He got 120 million. So tell me, 120 million, dude. Like, at, at 23 hours, are you like, well, maybe I'm not going to beat my score off to play it another 24 hours? <laughs> I mean, I, can you imagine that? It's like, that's... That's some, time to retire. Some Xbox... You could finish, like, three Xbox games in the time that it took him to play one game of Geometry Wars. <laughs> you can do it, Chris. Yeah, You no, gotta get a one it. I'm not that... that. You gotta want it, Chris. No, okay. And on the PSP, I'm playing Ratchet & Clank Size Matters. It's a pretty good game. It's got good graphics. It's Ratchet & Clank, so if you like that, you'll probably like it. The thing that sucks about it is it's on the PSP, and I hate the controls. <laughs> yeah, that's that's why I kind of that stopped playing familiar. the PSP. Yeah. Well, the problem is this: use the shoulder buttons to kind of move your orientation a bit, and it's just like not intuitive, and it's hard. It's like it's like you can see that it's a cool game graphically and stuff, but you don't have that much fun playing it because you're always struggling with the controls. So, so that's what I've been playing. Bummer, Chris. That sounds great. All right, on to the next segment, which is. News you can use. I- uh. All right, it's time for the news. News but, you can use. But before we get to that, we said we were going to go play Def Jam Icon, which we did. Oh, yeah, we did. So what do you guys <laughs> think of that? It has a really cool look to the graphics. I mean, there's something sort of... Uh, so what kind of game is it, Tom? Well, it's a fighting game where you also sort of scratch records in midair. <laughs> it's hard to explain. You, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a cross between the old school bad boys, the Fight Night, and uh, Parappa the Rapper. <laughs> I don't know. It's hard to explain. but I mean, it's basically a fighting game. But there's this weird move you can do where you you take your hands and it, it's as if you're scratching on turntables, but the turntables are just imaginary. They're just in the in the it's air. Like, it's like air guitars. But w- it's like air guitar. But when you do that, it actually makes the the music that's playing in the background of the game stop and scratch like that. And they yeah. seem to be tied to special moves. And like somehow it powers you up would, or something. When the other guy would do it, it would make set you on fire. Your character on right. fire or stuff. It'd just shoot me back or something. Yeah. But the, the graphics have this sort of heightened reality crazy look to them that looks really cool, actually. And when you get bruised, the bruises form and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, you get the cool. damage on your body and stuff. And we should just state the reason it's called Def Jam Icon is it has a bunch of musicians that are part of the Def Jam label. Maybe that's obvious. Right, but so it's, it's hip-hop. I don't we're, think it was obvious today. It was so. obvious. Very violent. Very violent. <laughs> very I don't approve of it for my kids. Do you have any kids? No, I don't have any kids. But if you did, (laughs) I wouldn't approve. All right, (laughs) they need to have a game like that where you fight, but with country music. Oh, (laughs) yeah, or eighties hair bands. (laughs) Right. Oh, Rat versus Def Leppard. Oh, Oh. Def Leppard would win. Come on. Well, (laughs) we'll see. So back to the news. Um, I guess the official NPD numbers came out for January '07. Uh, a few surprises in there. So this is the top sales for 
07. Number one. Game-wise. Game-wise. Uh, Xbox 360 Lost Planet Extreme Condition. 329,000 units sold. That's now, a lot. Here's the thing, Tom. In I was one lo- month? Looking at, yeah, I was looking at this and wondering. Yeah, that's a lot. But there was two SKUs. There was a collector's edition and the non-collector's edition. Oh, so, so does it, was it actually higher if you I'm combined guessing them. it is because this is a single SKU. Yeah, that's right. So it's probably closer to 400, maybe even... I'm a little surprised that that outsold Gears of War, which is number three. Yeah, 212,000. Well, I, I think Gears of War has been out a lot longer, right? That's true. And in between them at number two is uh, PS2 Guitar Hero 2. Right. Number four, we have WarioWare Smooth Moves. On the Wii. Right. So Wii. that that's probably far enough. So those are the top four uh, sales software-wise. But what about hardware, Tom? What's going on hardware? Well, this is interesting. The PlayStation 2 uh, sold 299K for 37.4 million, right? And the Xbox 360 came in at number two at uh, 294,000? Right. So that's pretty crazy. For a total of 4.8 million. And then number three, actually the Wii. The Wii. The Wii was number two. The Wii was number one. The Wii was what the hell? <laughs> this list isn't even in order, This list dude. is not in order. It's not in order at all. All right, so let me do a bubble sort in my head. All right. The, uh, <laughs> the Wii was number one with 436K for a total of 1.5 million. Okay, number two was the PlayStation 2. Not the PlayStation 3, but the PlayStation 2. Number three was the PlayStation 3. No, no. number oh, three no, was the 360. 360. And number four is PlayStation 3. Yeah. All right, so to get that again, Wii came in at number one. <laughs> <laughs> PlayStation 2 at number 2, Xbox 360 at number 3, but fairly close to the PlayStation 2, 294,000 versus 299,000 of the PlayStation 2, and PlayStation 3 fourth at 244,000. Now, interestingly, they sold almost as many Nintendo DSs as there were PlayStation 3s sold. Yeah, what does that say about the PlayStation 3? Do you think it's lack of availability? It's not anymore because you go to a store and you see them. I think it's lack of games. Right. So I. It does mean Sony's price, still on top. If you combine the PlayStation 2 and 3, that's still number one. Mm-hmm. Sony's still still on the most units. I don't know what that means or anything. Yeah. But not, <laughs> not the most next gen units. No. Or current gen, I'm sorry, because they're all out now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're an old gen with your Xbox and PS2. I'm old anyway, school. That's right. So, uh, yeah, what was I going to say? There are some good PlayStation 3 games coming out. Now, have you seen Virtua Fighter 5? That thing looks awesome. Haven't seen it. And the MotorStorm, I gotta say, I've seen them. Oh, but MotorStorm, I played that in the in The, the store. demo is different than the release, Tom. I played that the in the store. The demo is different than the release, Tom. I hope so, because I played it in the store, and I thought it was absolutely terrible. It's slow, right? It's not just that it's slow. It's that the handling of the vehicles is completely, ridiculously unrealistic. Yeah. From what I hear, the release version is a lot different, and it does support online multiplayer, but I hear it's kind of more tech demo-y than a real game. But, I mean, I've been seeing Virtua Fighter Five, and that looks really good, so I'm thinking I might have to pick up a PS3 at some say. point. At some point. I've got a lot of Best Buy uh, credit built up. So, uh, you have enough for a PlayStation? I've got enough for half of a PlayStation. All right. So I'm halfway there. So yeah. I'm probably going to get one, but it, it might be a little while. But there are more games coming out now. It's looking better. So uh, There'll be some point with, which pushes you over the edge. That's right. Virtua Fighter Five looks pretty good, yeah. i got to say. Well. Pretty good. All right. So what's the next story? Well, it's about the Wii. And is the Wii another hula hoop? 
It doesn't look like a hula hoop. I don't think so. Uh, Jack Schofield of The Guardian investigates the potential limited long-term value of the Wii. Quote, opposition to the controller's motion control concept cite it as a gimmick whose appeal would soon diminish. Do you think that's true? Is it a gimmick? I don't know. There is only one game that's really using it. Um, All right, so is the DS a gimmick? I don't think so. Yeah, I think this is just sour grapes. These are uh, old fogies who don't like the idea of anything new or different, and so they're gonna, they poo-pooed it, and now they're embarrassed that the Wii is doing so well. I mean, I was never sure that this motion-sensing thing would be worthwhile or would turn out to be more than a gimmick, but I, I always had an open mind. I wondered, and for me, it's incredible. I, yeah. I see it as a long-term revolution in gaming. Yeah, I mean, the thing that's going to potentially limit it, I don't think, is the control as much as the graphics, because, you know, it's already a bit outdated compared to what's, you know, current gen. So I could see that as being somewhat limiting. But from my perspective, that will never be an issue because I still play all my retro games. It's <laughs> right. really about the game and the experience, right? So that shouldn't matter. But I could see that being a limitation to some people. You know, some people are just totally in the graphics when it's not pushing out. You know, if it looks a lot different than what's yeah. the you know top end, then that might limit it. But I don't think it's going to be the controls. Well, the thing I fell in love with was the control. And right. if, I'd really like to see another... Um, Example of, of using that other than Wii Sports. There's, I mean, there's a lot. There's like yeah. Elabits and WarioWare and a ton of other games which you Ooh. haven't played that no. they do take advantage of it. All right. So, well, can't wait. Yep. All right. So, what else is going on? So, supposedly, some study found that um, surgical success was tied to video gaming skill. Why? Why? What do you mean? I. Apparently, there's a correlation. <laughs> so, the Guardian Unlimited, apparently, they did a research, or somebody did a research study, Important. I guess the Guardian just reported it, yep. that found a correlation between skill at video games and skill at keyhole surgery. So, young surgeons who spent uh, more time playing video computer games uh, made less errors than their counterparts who had never played a video game before. This sounds familiar. Is this an old story? Because I think I've heard this before. I don't know, but I mean, isn't it just practicing hand-eye coordination? I don't know. Like I, maybe they play the Wii. You know, I mean, it's a lot more. <laughs> maybe they play a what was that yeah, the surgery trauma center? Trauma, trauma center. Yeah, that's right. Well, I think I'd heard things like this before, where the Air Force finds that a lot of their pilots um, seem to be more advanced in skill when their kids have played video games, like the flight simulators or the other yeah. action ones. It makes sense. Before. I mean, yeah, it, hand-eye coordination's got to go up from playing video games. So, all right. We also have a story from money.aol.com that says, Do not buy a PS3. They compiled Uh a list of five gadgets consumers should not buy. And number two was the PS3. And they said the console has too many bugs, lack of games, and you can have better and cheaper fun with the Xbox 360 or the Wii. So what do you think about that? Well, all I know is that AOL is still technically owned by Time Warner. And Time (laughs) Warner is a direct competitor to Sony. Time Warner is to own Atari. Ah, yes. So, of course, though, Time Warner and subsidiaries are going to take every opportunity to slam anything that's from Sony. All right. Well, it may be be true. It may be deserved, but, you know. I don't take recommendations from AOL. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) That's true. I don't know. I'd say the PS3 right now, probably not worth buying. If you're a 360 and Wii, better experiences right now, more games. But we'll see. Longer term, I don't know. All right. What else? Well, we've got a Japanese student who admitted to committing murder to get money to play arcade games. I can see that. <laughs> this is from MSN Japan. A Japanese student admitted to murdering for money to feed his video game addiction at the arcades. A third-year stu- student murdered elderly folk at their home in Tokyo. 
Quote, I spent the money at video game arcades. I murdered them so I could steal some money, the suspect was quoted as telling investigators. So does this mean video games does cause violence? I don't know. Maybe so. Maybe so. I heard he was playing Def Jam Icon too, but I'm not sure <laughs> the that there's any correlation version. between the yes, the Japanese version. The, the random quarters. That's right. <laughs> All right. So there's a couple related rumors here. I would say um, related we, to murder. No, <laughs> they're related to each other. Okay. And they're uh, about the 360. And the first story is that uh, retailers have confirmed that a new SKU is in their system set for May 1st release for 479.99. So apparently, in addition to a new video interface, which I assume is HDMI, right? We've, we've seen that. It would contain a 120 gigabyte hard drive into uh, a black exterior. So a different color. This is the new Xbox 360. Yeah, Xbox 360, about, right. Yeah. yeah. So, sorry, sorry, you can't upgrade your existing Xbox. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're pretty empty. No, but those of us who haven't bought the 360 yet. Yes, exactly. Can wait for till May 1st. Yeah, and you'll be able to get a 120 gigabyte hard drive. Uh, and the new HDMI uh, interface. Apparently, that's what they're saying. Well, the larger hard drive definitely makes sense if you're going to download movies and stuff like that right. from Xbox Live. Other than that, though, I'm not sure. Or I suppose like downloadable content for games. So does that upset you at all that uh, there might be a new Xbox coming out? Well, not too much. I mean, the hard drive is detachable anyway, right? So yeah. in theory, you could buy just the bigger hard drive and put it in your Xbox, couldn't you? Yep. <laughs> That's the theory. I just I was thinking of a song when you said that. But... <laughs> you know what I'm saying, right? Uh, I don't know what you're talking about, Chris. Just the way you said it. All right. So, uh, anyway. Um, yeah. So, uh, and the other related story is that Microsoft apparently is considering a 360 price drop? Question mark? Uh, why would they do that? Obviously, if they're bringing out a new model, they might want to cut the costs on their existing models, and right? They might want to get rid right. of their inventory. Yeah, new exactly. Channel, but I, I hope the channel. core actually goes cheaper. Like, it'd be great if the core got down to like one ninety nine. I think that would really help Microsoft out because people would be like one ninety nine. I can get into it. For It'll that. never happen. It's less than a Wii. They're not going to price it lower than a Wii. You don't think so? Why no. not? I don't. Th- I think it would be embarrassing to them to have their awesome top-of-the-line Xbox 360 with the so much better graphics be priced cheaper than the Wii. All right. Well, we'll see. Just I prediction. Prediction. But it'll... What, about 249 <laughs> They could. I could see them trying to match it. I mean, if they're doing a price drop, it's already 299 Yeah, so they'll match it. They'll go to 249 What about the... Or 275 uh, What about the premium? I don't know. All right. 300 <laughs> So anyway, it's interesting. If you're thinking about buying a 360, either wait for the price drop or wait for the new model, I guess, is the... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Is what I'd say okay. on that. All right. So on to our next section, which is the... Retro Respect. Retro Respect section. All right. It's time for the Retro Respect section. This time we're talking about a book that I mentioned earlier called The Ultimate History of Video Games by Stephen L. Kent. If you're into video game history at all, I definitely recommend you pick up this book because it's awesome. Um, There's no pictures, unfortunately. Well, there's some pictures, but that's kind (laughs) of not the focus. It's really more about the whole history of video games from really way back in the early 1930s with like pinball, and we'll get into that in a bit. 
Um, but one thing that's cool is if you have watched any of the G4 Icons episodes, well, that's before they changed them to not being about video games. But in the, in the older episodes, Stephen L. Kent was one of the main guys you'd see talking about video games because he did all this research. And it's obviously it's obvious by reading the book how much time he took interviewing people to get all this information. So it's, it's really an awesome book. And like I say, I, I highly recommend anybody who's in, interested in the history of video games, uh, pick it up and give it a read. All right, so the book starts off, I guess, in, uh, like I mentioned, the 1930s, and it's talking about the dangers of pinball. How is pinball dangerous, Tom? Well, apparently a little bit like they say video games are today. Um, the most celebrated attack on pinball was by Fiorello LaGuardia, New York City's mayor, in the 1930s. And after six years of petitioning, a Bronx court found pinball to be an extension of gambling and made it illegal. Right, exactly. And I guess they had a live press conference where uh, the mayor de- just destroyed the machines with a sledgehammer. That's sad, because I would have totally taken those machines <laughs> if I was alive in 1930. And they, and they showed that on newsreels and theaters around the country, and actually that ban was still in place until 1976. See, that's what's crazy. 1976 in New York, you couldn't play a pinball machine. 1976. Was it respected? Yes, it was respected, respected Dave. Really? One of those laws that you, like... Don't cross the street the wrong way. No, no, it was real. Okay. Yeah, it was. A, in fact, here's the interesting part. In 1976, to overturn this decision, how did they do it, Dave? Well, to overturn the decision, they actually had to prove that pinball was a game of skill, not of chance. Right. So they had this guy named Roger Sharp. He was an extremely gifted pinball player. He had to demonstrate his skills in court. It was like, in the book they describe it, he's like, watch, I'm going to pull the plunger and I'm going to get it in this hole. And he did that, and the judge was like, okay, I've seen enough. It's a, it's a game of skill, because he could call a shot, right? So right. So then they allowed uh, pinball machines to be in New York. Now, see, what I don't understand about that is it's also widely known that like poker, is there's a lot of skill involved in that, not just chance. So just a skill game isn't what differentiates gambling. But I would think it's the winning money. Getting money, and I don't right. know how to, how to get money off pinball. So this whole thing okay, doesn't make so sense. Okay, so back in the in the 30s or whatever, apparently, um, you'd wager on games. It was you know mafia and and blah blah blah. They were they were using pinball. Actually, it was called baffle ball or something. These early pinball games to gamble with. So anyway, mm. I don't know. Mm. See, the thing is. Um, uh, much like a pool table could just be a game, but generally right. in the bars, people put right. money down. Yeah. Exactly. So interesting. Yeah. All right. So uh, so then uh, the next uh, thing that is kind of covered in the book, and we're kind of going chronologically, just picking out interesting things, is Nolan Bushnell. You know, he's kind of our people, buddy. Our buddy, really? Well, friend of the show. Friend not that we show. know him. Nolan Bushnell <laughs> is not a friend of the show. I wish he was. That would be awesome, but he's not. Uh, he. Uh, you know, he's kind of seen as the father of video games, even though Ralph Baer really technically is the person who is. He's kind of thought of that way. But in the early days, he wasn't doing video games. What was he doing, Tom? Uh, he was a carny. He worked at a, an amusement park called Lagoon in Salt Lake City. And he used to work at those games where you'd throw a ball and knock down milk cans and those kind of games in the midway where... Um, you know, it was, it was a game you'd play and try to win prizes, and he would try to get people to come and play those games. So what's kind of interesting about that is, you know, from his perspective, he was doing the same thing when he built his first video games. He was like, you know, the same things that we did with Pong is the same kind of stuff I wanted to do when I was working as a carny. I wanted to attract people to play those games. So he uh, he basically says, he's quoted as saying, you know, the things I learned about getting you to spend a quarter on one of my Midway games is what I used to uh, 
sales pitches with my automated box. And automated box, I think he's referring to Pong or any of the other video games. Playing in demo mode between, exactly. between games. Yeah. Right. Right. So Bushnell gets together. He creates his company, which would ultimately become Atari. But um, And it started as a three-way partnership, him and three other guys. And it's crazy. Each person only put in $250, which is, is nothing, right? To so start 90, the company? It's $1970. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So right. hardly any money at all. And they, they wanted to use a different name um, for the company. It wasn't Atari initially. What, what was it, Tom? Syzygy. <laughs> yeah, it was Syzygy. Syzygy. Oh, can you say that one more time, Tom? Syzygy. Okay, thank oh, you, Tom. Good. Thanks, Tom. All right. <laughs> and what does Syzygy mean, Tom? Uh, it's a word describing the straight-line configuration of three celestial bodies. How, they couldn't use Syzygy. I can't even say Syzygy. <laughs> They couldn't use that name. Why? Because a candle company already had that name. Oh, okay. Well, uh, so what did they? What did they do then? They turned to something else. Yeah, they decided to use a word from the Japanese game of Go, Atari. Atari is what you say when the other players' pieces are put in danger of being captured. It's kind of like saying check and chess. And a lot of people, you know, the Atari logo that actually is supposed to represent Mount Fuji. I don't know if you knew that, but uh, but that's true. As well. I thought it was a space rant because they would show a spaceship going up. Where where was that? I've never like seen the anime that. cartoons. I've never seen that. Never seen that. Never seen that. Woody. <laughs> <laughs> Our listeners will know what I'm talking about. They'll prove. They'll they'll back me up. Really? Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll see. All right. So uh, so what else is going on? All right. So the fake exercise is uh, kind of what went on here. Is a uh, Bushnell hired Al Alcorn away from Ampex to work at Atari. Now Al Alcorn was an engineer, so he hired him on to create games. And Bushnell told him that they had signed a contract with a. Ping, to develop a ping pong game for General Electric. But this was actually not true. This was all made up by Bushnell. He just wanted Alcorn to get familiar with the process of making games. So Al, Alcorn is quoted as saying, I found out later that it was simply an exercise that Nolan gave me because it was the simplest game that he could think of. He didn't think it had any play value. This is Pong. <laughs> That's funny that he didn't think people would play it. Yeah, so Pong went on to be a huge success, and it was all kind of an exercise that he'd given Al Alcorn when he started with the company. So they talked about the sounds that went into Pong. A lot of people have written about all the effort that went into creating the Pong sounds that occur when the ball hits the paddle. So Nolan, he wanted to actually have the sounds of a crowd cheering, and someone else wanted to hear booing and hissing. And so they said, you know, they didn't know how to make those kind of Al sounds. Al Alcorn, he was a he, he was a guy he who was, was he was the one trying to make right you know child's crowds clear cheering and uh, booing out of. Primitive electronics. They didn't even have synthesizers, right? Right. At this point. So what did he do, Tom? <laughs> well, he basically just sort of poked around to find a tone that the machine could already make. Right. So the interesting part is there's like this whole, um, like if you look on the web and read stuff, there's like the people that believe that they put all this time into picking the exact tones, you know. These are the Get tones the that, that, that Pong is going to have. And from Al Alcorn's perspective, he was like, this, the sounds were done in half a day. They were already in the machine. I just tweaked around with a sync generator to find an appropriate sound and said, screw it. So you had the thing, the game running and then had a little uh, probe connected to basically headphones, right? Listening for yeah. the right sound. I, that's awesome. So when this game got released, uh, they play tested it at Andy Capp's Tavern. You know, because they didn't really know, is this going to be a game that anybody's going to want to play? Again, it's just this exercise that they made up. So uh, 
And uh, Andy Cap, I guess he called Al Alcorn, and he was quoted as saying, you know, Al, it's the weirdest thing. I opened the bar this morning, and there were two or three people at the door waiting to get in. They walked in and played that machine. They didn't buy anything. I've never seen anything like this before. <laughs> so, And that's kind of the way Pong, you know, I wasn't, I don't really remember Pong that much. You know, I, I did play Pong, but I don't remember the phenomenon that was Pong. And apparently, it was a huge phenomenon when it first came out. So, yeah, Pong was a success, and they were putting them all over the place. Um, but apparently they had some trouble in Nevada. What, what went on there, Tom? Well, the early Atari machines had a problem with radio frequency interference. And the games actually had this interference on the same frequency used by the Nevada Highway Patrol. So when the police officers would get close to bars where the games were, they could no longer communicate. And when the bars shut down at about 2 a.m., then it would be fine again. So they decided to go around bars and unplug stuff until they figured out what it was. The police and, decided to do this. Yeah, and they unplugged the video game, and the inter- interference would go away. So uh, the Highway Patrol actually shut down Atari throughout Nevada <laughs> until the problem could be fixed. Now, that makes me think, I mean, nowadays the FCC is supposed to control that right, by assigning. Yeah. But this is early, right? Yes, so. but I imagine if someone had a game they put out that did that nowadays, they would be like massive fines, especially for blocking police signals. Exactly. So... One of the, the weird things, I guess, in the, the 70s is that it was kind of an unstated rule that um, vending companies serving the same area should uh, use different manufacturers. So, if, for example, if we were people who had vending machines we put in stores and we had competitors in the local area that put other vending machines in stores, we would use Atari to buy our video games and the competitor would probably use somebody else because we didn't want to use the same, the same people, right? Does that make sense? Same manufacturer? Right. So this was a problem for Atari because they wanted to make as much money as possible. So they wanted to be the manufacturer for everybody, right? Regardless of whether they already had one in a local area. So they came up with this, uh, with this idea of how they could, uh, do this. And the idea was that they could compete with themselves. (laughs) Yeah. So they set up another company called key games founded by Joe Keenan, who was Nolan Bushnell's neighbor. Yeah. And, and they actually, when they would talk to people who were these uh, distributors in local areas, they they talked bad about key games like Atari. Would they'd say like, you know, those bastards, you know, they they suck. They're stealing all our ideas and blah blah blah. <laughs> and these people would love it. They'd be like, that's awesome. You know, we're gonna, you know, we got to get those key games guys, and we got to get those Atari guys or whatever. So they were competing against themselves. The only problem with this was that key games was actually too successful. Yeah, they created a game called Tank that was very popular while Atari was still struggling. So essentially what happened is they merged the companies back together and made Atari again. So I don't know if you remember this, Key Games, they had the little Key logo on some yeah. of their games. like they had, And they always have the same games Atari had. Well, there's a reason for that. They were, they were <laughs> the same company. And in fact, Nolan and I guess Al were both on the board of directors or something like that for Key Games, so... If, if anybody took the time to look, they would have been able to figure this out. But they didn't. But they didn't, because people are lazy. Yeah. So I guess there was somebody who worked at Atari who was kind of... I guess people still know him today. Is that true? A little man by the name of Steve Jobs. Right. So Steve... Steve-o. Steve Jobs worked at Atari in the early days. Uh, one of the common complaints about Steve on the job is that he smelled bad. <laughs> <laughs> I had that same problem. Yeah, well, that's true. He, yeah, And Tom does, too. That's why he sometimes <laughs> sounds like he's a long ways from the microphone. But, uh, no, sorry. Um, so, uh, and I guess he, uh, Steve Jobs offended a lot of people because he treated them as idiots. <laughs> but, but <laughs> That's one a of the, problem too. 
<laughs> so one of the funny stories in this book is that uh, in 1975, uh, Jobs decided to make a pilgrimage to India. I guess at the same time, several tank machines had broken down in Germany. So Al Alcorn offered Jobs a one-way ticket to Germany if he'd fix the machines. A one-way ticket. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> anyway, so uh, apparently he wanted to go to India to meet his guru. So that's why uh, why he wanted to go there. So uh, Steve came back, I guess, around the time that Atari was starting up their consumer stuff, and he was wearing uh, saffron robes and had a shaved head. He had shaved his head. Wow. Right. And he came back and he gave Al Alcorn a book, the Baba Ram Das book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and apparently he had hepatitis or something and had to get out of India before he died. That's what Al Alcorn's quoted as saying. <laughs> so uh, Steve Jobs... He smells bad. He treats people like idiots, and apparently had hepatitis. Hepatitis from India. Right. So there you go. <laughs> it's better than the plague, I guess. That's true. So Atari had developed a home version of Pong, and right. they were trying to get it sold through Sears. And they went to the 27th floor of the Sears Tower in Chicago to give a demonstration. And when Al Alcorn turned on the game, nothing happened. It turned out the Sears Tower has an antenna on the roof that broadcasts a signal on Channel 3. So he says... I turned the prototype upside down and opened the bottom up. I got it to work in about 10 minutes. I was sweating and ready to jump out the window. This was too much pressure for the kid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and so what's interesting about this and why I picked this out is this reminds me of every demo we've ever done. (laughs) Because you get, right, you don't know the scenario. You go into some company and you're going to demo your software and it always is there's something there unexpected. I mean, imagine. It causes it to not work. They they probably tested this thing forever and they're like, oh, no problem. It's working great. They go there and they're getting interference because of some tower on the 27th floor. (laughs) But what's kind of funny as well is they'll, I guess when he opened up the unit, it was just kind of a rat's nest full of wires. It was kind of the prototype board at the time. And uh, I guess the people in Sears were kind of bothered by the amount of wires that were in it. Um, and Al Alcorn noticed this, and he's like, hey, don't worry. We'll replace the wires with a silicon chip the size of a fingernail. <laughs> and and one of the guys was like, uh, Mr. Alcorn, you're telling me that you're going to reduce that rat's nest to, of wires to a little piece of silicon the size of your fingernail? And he was like, yeah. And the guy said, uh, how are you going to solder the wires to it? <laughs> because obviously you wouldn't solder wires. To- anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so home competition. Uh, so Atari gets out their Pong console. Who else is around ready to compete with them? Well, there was uh, Coleco. And I didn't know this, but Coleco is originally the Connecticut Leather Company. Right. So they started out in the 50s making kits for leather crafts. And they became Coleco, and they had a video tennis console called Telstar. Which was really, really successful. Yeah, it went on to sell over $100 million worth of that console and rose to the top of the consumer game business. So you did, did you know that, Woody, that uh, Coleco was the Connecticut no, leather company? and it's fascinating how many of these companies fell sideways in the video game industry. Like Nintendo started out as a card game, right, you know, exactly. playing cards. and So that's just interesting. Yeah. And I've mentioned this before, but I, my, my family actually had one of the original Home Pong really? sets that you hooked up to the TV. Uh, that was great. Great game. <laughs> So I guess Bushnell, um, he uh, he left Atari. You know, his ways kind of didn't work because Warner Communications bought Atari, and and Bushnell became a millionaire. But then they decided to kind of get rid of Bushnell, or he decided to leave. You know, whatever. And Ray Kassar took over. Um, Kassar, I like I said, he didn't like the way Bushnell was running the company, so he left. Uh, one of the things he said before he left is that you know Nolan would walk around wearing T-shirts that said things like "I love to screw." You know, <laughs> this is this is the man running the business. So, 
So eventually, you know, uh, Bushnell's gone, and Ray Kassar takes over as the CEO of Atari. And then what happens? Well, then, in 1978, Space Invaders was released. And this was a worldwide hit. In fact, uh, many vegetable stores in Japan decided to get rid of vegetables and dedicate the whole store to Space Invaders. Makes sense. I think Space Invaders is more fun than vegetables. And uh, I had heard this, too, that it caused a nationwide coin shortage in Japan because people got all the change and fed it into the Space Invaders machine. Yeah. Space Invaders, that was really the first video game I think I ever played. I played it at the cattle company in Gresham. They had a cocktail version of Space Invaders, and I was hooked. I was like, this is awesome. All right, so Nolan Bushnell, even though he's he's gone from Atari, he's not not out of the picture. He's uh, working on something... uh, Pizza related? I don't know. Yeah, he had this side project called uh, Chuck E. Cheese, a pizza and video game restaurant. Right. So when he left Atari, he bought the rights to Chuck E. Cheese for a very small amount. He paid about 500000 for the entire project, including the rights to the robot technology. And he also came up with the concept of uh, redeeming tickets. Right, that whole concept that, you know, the kids love, they still love today, right? Where you go and you play these stupid games and they get these dumb tickets to get an item that costs like a tenth of what they spent <laughs> to get the tickets in the first place. That was kind of Bushnell's idea. And in fact, kind of how it started, remember, he was a carny. So um, the, a company that was making um, skee-ball games, they were, they were pretty much going to go out of business. So Bushnell bought all those, put them in Chuck E. Cheese, and hooked up these redemption tickets to them and came up with this concept that uh, kids could, you know, kind of like gambling, uh, get stuff for the tickets they won. This, this is all, this is how all the uh, Wonderlands work. Exactly. That's, 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 too bad he didn't patent it. Or maybe he did. I don't know. He made a lot of money off Chuck yeah. E. Cheese, I can tell you that. So apparently after Ray Kassar took over, he uh, he focused a lot on the home division, even though the coin-op division is was the division creating all the games, and they were just converting them for the home. He's like, well, the best-selling cartridges are coming from the home division, and he gave them a, you know, a lot more focus, and I guess made the coin-op division feel alienated. I think we talked about that before in a previous podcast. So there's something related to pizza and characters and big hits. What What's going on there, Tom? Uh, that's... Pac-Man, and the designer of Pac-Man said, The actual figure of Pac-Man came about as I was having a pizza for lunch. I took one wedge, and there it was, the figure of Pac-Man. What was his name? Uh, Toro Iwatani. Yeah, so this is made by who? Namco. Right, so the Namco of Japan. Yeah, and they decided to change the name from Puck-Man to Pac-Man. Well, why why would they do that? Because Puck is a four-letter word. <laughs> because it's really easy to alter the word Puck <laughs> Puck to be man. something else. <laughs> Fuck, man. All right. Well, anyway. Yeah. It's very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently at the uh, AM, AMOA show, which was kind of the big trade show back then, Namco had four games on display. One of them was Rally X. Uh, and a lot of people thought that that was kind of going to be the big hit. Pac-Man and Rally X, they were two decent games, but they thought Rally X was really going to be the winner. But once released, Pac-Man quickly overshadowed Rally, Rally X, selling more than 100,000 machines in the United States. So even though Pac-Man was the highest grossing game of all time, what did uh, Toru Iwatani get in, in recognition? He got uh, butt kiss. Not much. No bonus. Nothing. It's pretty lame. It's, uh, isn't that similar to what Shigeru Miyamoto got for uh, Super Mario Brothers? Or for Mario? You mean Donkey Kong? Yes. Thank you. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. but Yeah. But it was the same thing. For creating the character Mario, he got um, a, 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 a pat on the back. Yeah. Probably so. 
He got some tickets that he could redeem. <laughs> Valuable small plastic prizes. At the local Chuck E. Cheese. At the local Chuck E. Cheese. So, a lot of people are familiar with the game Battlezone, right? It was done by Ed yeah, Robert. Yeah, games. Yeah, it's one of mine, too. Yeah. It's really the first kind of... Well, it wasn't the first, but it was one of the best uh, three-dimensional games at the time. Had vector graphics, yep. three-dimensional, blah, blah, blah. And... Um, I guess the military also liked the game because they wanted a more real, realistic version made. So Atari actually was contracted, and they made a military version of Battlezone. I think it was called the Bradley Trainer. Right, And what's right. sort of interesting about it is the controller that they used on that would ultimately become the controller for the Star Wars video game. So it got its start, that controller, which is really cool, the control you know, in, in, in Star Wars the video game, was uh, started with the military version of, of Battlezone crazy i'd love to play that the military version there's really not very many but you can go on the web search for bradley trainer and you can see some pictures it's Mm -hmm. pretty crazy that they made one but but they did so also around that time uh, shigeru miyamoto was hired at nintendo we talked about this in our nintendo episode to create side art for their arcade games including uh, radar scope radar scope and sheriff and in 1979 he was asked to make an arcade game and he, since he wasn't focused on the technical aspects, he was able to create an elaborate story around the game. Do you think a lot of people know that, though, when they hear about Miyamoto? Do they think he's actually programming it, or do they know that he's just the designer? He doesn't really do anything technical, right? Right. And so he came up with this story uh, about a gorilla escaping from his master, who was a carpenter, and kidnapping his girlfriend. And uh, he spoke very little English, so he used a Japanese-to-English dictionary to come up with a name, and he wanted to call it Stubborn Gorilla. Which is a great name, dude. Why isn't it called Stubborn Gorilla? <laughs> it Stubborn Gorilla Jr. It should have been. <laughs> now, he chose Donkey. It was listed as a synonym for Stubborn. And Kong, because it's a synonym for Gorilla. So Donkey Kong went on to become one of the hottest games and made Nintendo one of the most recognized names in the American arcades. And that's really where I first learned about Nintendo was Donkey Kong. That was just it was an awesome game because it was so different than anything that was out at the time. You really had a character for you know the first time in a video game and it had multiple levels and it was just that's really true. cool. Now did you ever figure out how was the player supposed to figure out what Mario what his background was and how the other than the story if Miyamoto created this whole backstory. Right, you mean when you're playing the game, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah. For all, all I knew about it is that there's this woman that you need to rex- rescue. Well, and... he's in the the thing with the rivets, you know. Hey, it's carpenter rivets. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I okay. don't know. He walks up girders. There's no manual that comes with these games. No, I, I, it may say on the thing, but I don't, I don't think so. Yeah, no. All right. Well, there's another idea that had been going around at Atari, and that was to make a first person version of Space Invaders. Well, that seems kind of like a weird idea, doesn't it? First I don't know. Person, Space uh, Invaders is a big hit. Why not do a first-person yeah, one? I, I can't think of how that would what that would look like. So this guy named Dave Thurer decided to actually attempt it, but once he got the game working, people decided it wasn't very fun. So attempting to save his work, he had a dream one night about aliens that were coming out of a hole in the ground. So he changed his game, and that became Tempest. That's awesome. Which is a great game, and with yeah. that, and he also introduced this heavy knob that you could spin like a dial, which also I love. I it's love spinning the knob, even if I'm not playing the game. <laughs> spin the knob; it makes I, a really cool yeah. whooshing noise. Whoosh! I hated that game. I would just yeah. I sucked at it. Well, yeah, that's very true. <laughs> I would just spin the dial and hit the button as fast as I can. It seems that like if you just held down the button and span, you you should you should be able to kill everything. Span, you could, you, span. You could just spin spin. spin the dial and hit the button as fast as you can. You could pass a level or two. That's how I'd get to the third level. <laughs> that didn't work with the spikes. Yeah, once I you had the say. spikes, that yeah, that, yeah. that little yeah. pattern doesn't. Now it's interesting that originally the knob didn't spin your ship around the outside. It spun the whole playfield around. 
But it may, started to make people sick. Yeah, I was going to say, that made me dizzy. I can, <laughs> so the, I can picture it right now. I so, he, <laughs> so he changed it so that it just rotated you around the, the edge. That's awesome. So uh, this guy named Warren Robinett, is that how you pronounce that? I think sure. you pronounce it syzygy. <laughs> <laughs> How's that talk? No, just kidding. So he was a VCS designer. He created uh, several games, but uh, the one he's probably best known for is the reproduction, uh, a graphical version of the original text-based adventure game, Colossal Caves Adventure, with uh, Will Crowther and Don Woods. So he made a graf- graphical version on the Atari 2600. You guys know what game that is? Is that Adventure? Adventure, adventure. exactly adventure. right. Yes. So that's what it... And, uh, What's interesting is it's also well known for having dragons that look like ducks. That's what I remember when, you, when I saw this. I thought I I know exactly what you're talking about. And the reason was apparently at that time programmers made their own graphics yeah. and and we, we, and we know how good we are at yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm pretty good at it. I'm when just I, kidding. <laughs> my graphics sucked when yeah, I used well, to make my own games. That's true, Dave. Thank yeah, you. thanks. So the biggest innovation in Adventure was by doing the right steps, you could get to a screen that displayed the message created by Robinet. And this was referred to as an Easter egg by Electronic Games Magazine. And it was so popular that many future games would have the same concept. So that's the first Easter egg in Adventure for the Atari 2600. Did you guys ever get to that? No, I didn't. I did. Because I had a magazine and it told me how to do it. <laughs> so I went through it. It's pretty cool. You know, it's pretty awesome. I it's remember at the elaborate, time. Yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was very elaborate. And But once you got there, it was like, wow, this is in a game. And it's something completely hidden. that, And so it's kind of where a lot of people say, and I don't know if this is true or not, but a lot of the inspiration for games, even like Super Mario Brothers with all these hidden things and stuff, kind of came from that idea, you know, that initial idea, because it was really popular. So, Well, and it certainly helps replayability even into today, because you can do all the stuff that's obvious, but then you want to go play the game to find all the hidden stuff that right. you didn't do before. So, I mean, it basically expanded the, the whole paradigm of gameplay. Exactly. In one, one fell swoop. So, Atari 2600, they're selling these cartridges, they're doing real good, and Dave kind of uh, alluded to this earlier, that uh, the people creating cartridges, uh, I guess we alluded to that a long time ago when we did another episode. That's right. All right, so anyway, whatever. So, uh, that the people that were making these cartridges weren't getting much money, right? Right, they're, so, they're feeling disenfranchised. So, a lot of them decided they wanted to leave. They're like, we're not, you know, we're not uh, getting what we want, we're going to go ahead and leave, and we're going to make our own company. And um, that company was Activision that a lot of the guys went to. People like David Crane, Alan Miller, Bob Whitehead. They left Atari, and they they created this company called Activision. And what's kind of interesting is this was really the first time a third party had ever attempted to create games for another company's game console. While this would be done for, like, computers, it wasn't done in game consoles. So it was kind of a big deal. And Atari attempted to sue them, saying they had no right to create games for their hardware. Can you guys imagine that today? Yeah, I mean, it seems it seems very strange. Well, I could see how the I could see why Atari would try to sue them at least. How how did it turn out? It didn't turn out very well. They lost, uh, but and, and once they lost, um, Activision went on to create a lot of huge hits. In fact, everybody who had a twenty six hundred at the time, you bought the Activision games. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, Pitfall. Those, yeah, Pitfall, Kaboom, uh, Freeway, Laser Blast, just a ton of great games produced by Activision. Barnstorming, River Raid. Sorry, yeah, but. Uh, and Activision, unlike Atari, is still around today. <laughs> exactly true. <laughs> That's actually right. Activision is a huge producer today. All so right, so in, what happened in 1982? Yeah, in 82, the, uh, the leather company, Connecticut Leather Company, Coleco, <laughs> introduced a, a new superior video game into the market called the ColecoVision. 
And this was focused on bringing the lesser-known arcade hits to the home. Like, uh, Zaxxon was the one I remember. Mr. Do. Mr. Do. Well, I love Mr. Do. Ladybug. Venture. I love Venture. Venture was a great game. Do you guys yeah. remember Venture? Yeah, yeah that was one of my It had games. the rooms, and you'd go around yep. and have the little smiley face dude and boom, boom, shoot Try little and shoot arrows the, yeah. and crap. Dude, yep. that was an awesome game. Exidy was an arcade company. I'm sorry. But I used to play that. I gotta say, ColecoVision, out of ColecoVision, I loved my ColecoVision. Um, because it had awesome arcade type graphics at the time. It was so much better than the 2600. But again, they focused on lesser known arcade hits. I think that's because Atari had rights to a lot of the, the major games, you know, the more mainstream ones. So, But the biggest game on the console was Nintendo's Donkey Kong, which Coleco obtained exclusive rights to. And so that was the pack-in with the system, and they had a six-month exclusive on the ColecoVision. Well, they always had an yeah. They had an exclusive for consoles altogether, Coleco. So for the first six months, they only produced it for ColecoVision, and then after that, Coleco produced versions of Donkey Kong for other consoles, including the VCS and Intellivision. Did you guys ever play ColecoVision Donkey Kong? I'm not, not sure. It was it was awesome. I mean, it looked just it like the arcade game. The worst part about it, though, the part that really irritated me, they didn't have all the levels. Didn't have the Pie Factory. Yep. <laughs> Everything but the Pie Factory, which was the fourth level, so that really irritated me. But apparently the Atom version did, but we'll get to that later. So a couple of MIT students, Doug McRae and Kevin Curran, started a company called General Computer. And they initially focused on creating PAL, or add-on boards, for existing games. So this overlaid code on top of the existing games, so they weren't changing the game's ROMs. And that's important, because a lot of times, you know, it would be easy to take these... Uh, ROMs that are in these arcade games and change them to make the game a bit different, but you would get sued by the people who actually produce the games, right? Because you're changing their code. But what these guys did is they built their boards in such a way as their ROM chips laid over the top of the existing ROM chips to create a different game. So they're using the old game's hardware, but they have new programming, their own programming. Yeah, but it, it leaves the old programming in and overlays over the top. Right. So, so anyway. it gets around legal issues, basically. Exactly. Yeah. And the first upgrade they created was for Missile Command. It was called Super Missile Command. And people probably don't remember that, but they might remember the their other add-on that was pretty popular. Uh, it was an add-on for Pac-Man called Crazy Auto. And apparently uh, Pac-Man had legs. Do you remember this, Tom? No, I don't. Well, that's because it never came out. <laughs> what happened is uh, Crazy Auto was complete, and they, they took it to Bally to see if Pally would might be interested in, in purchasing this from them. And Bally said, this looks great. Why don't you go ahead and make some changes to it? And the result was Miss Pac-Man. Oh. So that was created by General Computer. started out as a game called Crazy Auto. even appeared on Time Magazine as Crazy Auto. Never came out. It'd be great if somebody could find those ROM chips, but I don't think they've ever been found. <laughs> the Crazy Auto ROM chips. If they, so. if they were, they'd be out there if they were. If you would think so, yeah. Yeah. So our Atari, uh, what they did is Atari. You know, they had, they did this thing for Missile Command, this this add-on kit. But Atari didn't like that because Atari's whole thing was you got to buy new games. So if these guys are going around making these add-on kits, they kind of you know, negate the ability to sell new games, right? Right. So they, they said, well, what, what do we do? We're going to hire these guys. So they paid General Computer 50000 a month for the next two years to develop games and stop making these enhancement kits. So after about 90 days, um, these guys, uh, Doug McRae and Kevin Curran, showed up on Atari's uh, doorstep and said, uh, we have our first game to show you. And uh, that game turned out to be Food Fight. Now, the interesting part about this is Atari had no idea that these guys were ever going to come back and say anything to them. The whole idea was that they were paying them 50000 a month. To go away. To go away. To not do anything. And not do anything. <laughs> yeah. 
So uh, apparently he didn't make that clear. Yeah. <laughs> so Doug McRae is quoted as saying, "Atari did not hear from us for about ninety days, and we called them up and said we've got our first video game we'd like like to take a look at." And he said they sounded kind of shocked, saying, "We did not really expect." Uh, sure. And that's where Food Fight came from. So uh, as it turns out, uh, yeah, like Atari was paying them to do nothing. <laughs> or trying to. Trying to. And they produced Food Fight. And actually went on to produce a lot of the 5,200 games as well. But then came a time of trouble. Pac-Man was a really bad port. And uh, in our Atari episode, we talked a little bit about why that was. It had to fit in 2K of RAM. The, the port to the 2600. Yeah, the yeah. port to the 2600. And then E.T. was released. And it's widely regarded as one of the worst games ever made. Um, not sure that it really is the worst game ever made or one of the worst, but it was definitely a very unsuccessful game in the marketplace. Right. Uh, there's a lot of them sitting in some hole in Mexico somewhere. So it, as it turns out, Atari had a lot of uh, 20-somethings making multi-million dollar decisions without really understanding the industry. So there are a lot of MBAs, I guess, right out of college, and they were making these huge, huge decisions for the company. And I guess my favorite one is, well, go ahead. Distance. Sounds like a lot like the dot com industry in uh, yeah. ninety eight to two thousand two. Yeah. So one woman, I guess, apparently kept asking Stephen Race. Uh, he was a former vice president of marketing and communication for the international division. If they want to create a game based on the Rubik's cube, because that makes sense, right? <laughs> so here's his quote. He said, "Well." You're going to have to help me understand why a $40 electronic rendition of this product is better than a $3.98 original that is portable and I can take it anywhere I want. And it turned out that Rubik's Cube was a horrible disaster for they Atari. Actually did try Wait a minute, it. they did make it? They did make it, apparently. Yeah. They made a home video game version of Rubik's Cube. For $40 that was... Wow. Uh, I didn't know that, but that sounds like a <laughs> dumb thing to do. <laughs> so... Uh, Home games are kind of declining. We had this fall with crappy cartridges coming out. So computers kind of take their place. What's the, what's the computer that uh, was the biggest seller of all time? Uh, the Commodore. Right, Commodore 64. And that was founded by... Commodore was founded by Jack Tramiel. And he was a concentration camp survivor at Auschwitz. Yeah. And he was also known as being one of the most complex people ever in the computer industry. Um, Commodore... And Tramiel purchased MOS Technologies for eight hundred thousand dollars in nineteen seventy six. Isn't that Moss? Moss. Moss. <laughs> and they made the sixty five oh two, the chip that would become uh, the, the heart, the of, heart the... of the Apple II, yep. and the Atari four hundred and Atari eight hundred computers. Yep. It's the first chip I ever learned to program on. That's right. Yep. Commodore owned it. So one thing that's kind of funny about Jack um, and Commodore is they were known for not paying their bills. Which is weird, right? They're this huge company. They're making this money, but they wouldn't pay their bills. And the reason they would do that um, is they would have these small companies, right, that would sell them. They'd be their suppliers. Be their suppliers, yeah. and they wouldn't pay them. And they'd say, yeah, we're going to get you that payment or whatever. And they'd say, we still need more chips, and they'd go ahead and send them. Well, eventually, these companies would run out of money. It'd, it'd these small companies, straits. they'd be in dire straits, right? Yeah. So Commodore would go in and buy them for a very low amount of money because they – didn't have any money, and uh, and they'd basically forgive their own debts. So Commodore went around doing this and, and actually acquired several companies doing that, which is, is crazy. Really sneaky. Lame. Right. Well, whatever. Lame. So they went on to introduce the Commodore 64, and that's the best-selling personal computer of all time. Did you know that, Tom? No. I didn't know that. Now you do. Um, now we get to electronic arts. Uh, Trip Hawkins was the 68th employee at Apple. And the founder of Electronic Arts. That smelly guy was running that company, right? 
<laughs> he found and hired talented programmers for the design team, such as Bill Budge, David Maynard, and Dan Button. They chose the name Electronic Arts to emphasize the artistry and the artists of the games that they published. Now, one thing that's kind of interesting about Electronic Arts back in the day is that um, their boxes didn't look like any other box. They had this kind of album cover, right? They were thin, kind of like a record. You'd open them up. And they always had really cool art on them. And I guess they wanted to make them look like album covers to kind of differentiate their games from other ones that you would see in the store. And they were a big success. Some of the initial games were uh, Archon, which was a favorite of mine, and Pinball Construction Set, which I still think is a fantastic game. And what I really want is to be something like that on the Xbox 360. Dave played it the other day. Pinball Construction Set? Yeah. Yeah. No. No. Wasn't, yeah, you did. That's, that's right. Yeah, I did on the, on the simulator. <laughs> uh-huh. Wasn't Archon the chess game? Is that, it, was like, chess. it was like chess, but then when the when the pieces came into conflict, they would actually fight it out in a little arcade right, game right. fighting thing. That was fun. I, had, I, I remember yeah. that one. I like that. So I guess this worked for a while, you know, kind of promoting designers, come up with packaging and stuff, but their big innovative idea came around in 1984. They had this idea that they're going to use famous uh, sports figures in the name of their games. So the first game that they did was a one-on-one featuring Dr. J and Larry Bird. I remember this game. The game was awesome, dude, because yeah, you, you know why? You could break the backboard. Oh, you remember that? Right. And then the little janitor would come out and sweep it away. Yeah, yeah. I, It was fun. It was just yeah. a fun game. Gameplay. So they paid, uh, I guess, uh, Dr. J a lot of money. I mean, this was a huge contract back then, and Electronic Arts was a bit worried about it cost, costing too much. So uh, how much was it? Uh, $25,000. $25,000. I mean, can you imagine? No, I'm just kidding. That's like nothing. <laughs> they paid 25000 to use his name and image, so that's like crazy. Imagine what people, they have to pay those guys today. <laughs> and uh, So they went on and were hugely successful with the series of games. They had like Earl Weaver baseball. They had all these other. And, of course, John Madden football, which they still have today. I mean, that that's, Tanya Harding skating. No, I, <laughs> I think that was only released in the Portland area. Oh, right. Sorry. Okay. okay. But um, but it's a strategy that they're still using today, right? Yeah. yeah. Tiger Woods Golf, like, like we were just talking about. Who makes Def Jam Icon? Is that EA, too? It might be EA. I don't know. Anyway, there you go. So uh, they, a lot of EA's early success was even with the Commodore 64 computer, because, again, Commodore 64 was a huge seller, and a lot of their games were made for it. So My, my favorite game of all time, Mule, was on 64. That's right. Mule is a great game. Yeah. Another game by EA, too. Yep. Yep, dead button. All right, so so I guess uh, Nintendo at this point, you know, computers are doing real well. We have the Commodore 64 out there selling a ton. And they decide, hey, let's release a home console. <laughs> so those crazy Japanese. Exactly. <laughs> so they were reading the Famicom, which actually was already le- released in Japan. They wanted to release it in the U.S. And they looked for Atari to potentially be a partner. And this was almost a done deal, but it collapsed at the 83 Summer CES show. And the reason it collapsed is that uh, Coleco was demonstrating Donkey Kong on the Atom computer. Now, as we talked about before, Coleco had exclusive rights for home consoles. Donkey Kong, right? But the Atom was technically a computer. And Atari had exclusive rights for Donkey Kong on computers. So this upset Atari. They're like, you said that we had exclusive rights, and they're demonstrating Donkey Kong on the Atom computer. And Atari called off the deal. So imagine if that hadn't have happened, and Atari had distributed the Nintendo... In the U.S. Wh- where would they have uh, been? They may have still been around today and yeah, going strong. Yeah, that's amazing. So, um, 
So after some unsuccessful attempts to get the NES going in America, Nintendo looked to another company, uh, Worlds of Wonder. Do you remember they, Worlds of Wonder? They had achieved success Teddy with... Ruxpin. Teddy Ruxpin. Teddy Ruxpin. Laser Tag, and Laser Tag. Oh, I, I had Laser Tag. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, no, now, I gotta man. say, with Laser Tag, it always kind of pissed me off because people would cover their little it thing. It was impossible yeah. to play. Yeah, yeah because they like you, little target, they'd cover it with their hand. And those people, you don't want to play with those people. <laughs> anyway, all right. So Worlds of Wonder was composed of five ex-Atari executives and a lot of the old Atari sales force. So making Worlds of Wonder a distributor for the NES was a big success for Nintendo and the salespeople. So it's kind of interesting. I guess the the weird part about that is they wanted Atari, right? But Atari broke off the deal. So then they went to Worlds of Wonder, and Worlds of Wonder had a ton of Atari's ex-sales force. Anyway, so they ended up getting what they wanted, but they went through Worlds of Wonder. So, And that partnership went until 1987, and at that point, Nintendo had so much cloud in the market, they decided they didn't need a partner anymore. Right. So it, I guess there was a company in the UK uh, called Ashby Computer Graphics, and two brothers ran it, Tim and Chris Stamper. And I guess in 1983, Joel Hochberg um, visited Tokyo and saw the Famicom, and he bought one of these because he knew these, uh, these two brothers and sent one, you know, one of these consoles to them and said, you know, you guys should produce games for this. And in order to produce games, they thought they needed schematics and specifications, right? And they didn't have those. So they all flew, I guess, to Redmond, or at least Hochberg did, and asked Nintendo if they could form a partnership. And Minoru Arakawa, is that how you pronounce that? And he wanted the technical specs for this. Right. These, guys, these two brothers wanted the technical specs. Uh, the guy from Nintendo, Minoru Arakawa, Arakawa. Yeah. He, he said, why, why do you need that? You have to prove that you have the technical expertise. So uh, Chris Stamper, one of these brothers, he reverse-engineered the NES and got it about 99% correct. Yeah, it says he discovered aspects of the machine that w- weren't documented. Right. So I guess this company, these two brothers, they started, they started Rare, the company Rare, which went on to create really, really cool games for the Nintendo, Super Nintendo, and eventually they got acquired by Microsoft and created Viva Pinata. Yeah. So uh, they, they presented, uh, I guess when they reverse-engineered it, and found those aspects of the machines that weren't documented, that would actually help them later because they knew a lot of things and ways to tweak the hardware that people that were just reading from the technical documents <laughs> didn't even know. So it's really uh, interesting that that's where they got their start. But uh, but once they had done this and reverse engineered it and showed it to them, Nintendo said, go ahead and create games for our system. So then there's another company called Konami, and they were one of the biggest third-party developers for the NES. They did uh, Castlevania, Double Dribble, Blades of Steel... But because of the licensing agreement they had with Nintendo, they were only allowed to produce five games a year. And of course they wanted to produce more than that. So they found a way around the rule. Um, Arakawa allowed Konami to create a second license under a different name called Ultra. And under the Ultra name, they produced titles like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And And, uh, and the well-known Metal Gear franchise. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Because I remember Ultra. And I was like, who's this Ultra company? And, and don't they still put Ultra on the boxes for Metal Gear? I swear I see that like I as a sub-brand or something. I don't know. But that's why they did it. So Nintendo had this strict agreement that's like five games per year. So create another company. We can produce more games. Just give it a different name. So about this time, uh, Sega you know, appears with their system. And what I found most interesting, I don't want to go into all the Sega versus Nintendo stuff. Because there's a lot of stuff that we could talk about there. But what does Sega stand for? Do you guys know? Sega! Sega! It stands for service games. It does? Yeah. In fact, Sega was started by an American 
in uh, in Japan. Apparently, during the uh, war, right around the time of the war, the um, America was like they had all these gambling machines, slot machines, and stuff, and they were saying these were illegal or whatever. And this guy went over to I don't we don't have this written down. This is just kind of from memory. He uh, brought the machines over to Japan and started setting them up in Japan, and it was called <laughs> Service Games. Uh, eventually, they went on to uh, bring over arcade games, you know, kind of fun games like Shooting the Bear, shooting the, you know, kind of shooting gallery type stuff. And eventually, they they went into be Sega and produced video games. So, start out called Service Games. It was actually done by an American in Japan, uh, crazy as it may sound, and that's where Sega kind of got their start. Wow. So, one of the chapters in this book, this book is awesome, by the way, The Ultimate History of Video Games. It just, one of the chapters is all about lawsuits. And I thought, oh, this is going to be boring. I don't really care about lawsuits. You know, I thought it would be would be the least interesting part. But actually, I found it the most interesting because I, I think our legal system is kind of screwed up. And you'll see that in the next uh, couple of cases. So, anyway, here we go. So, Nintendo used the 10NES security system to ensure that only authorized developers could develop games for the NES. And Atari worked to replicate the NES system by monitoring communication between the master and slave chips. They went so far as to chemically peel layers from the NES chips to allow for microscopic examination of the object code. So basically what Atari's trying to do is Nintendo has a security system in place and you have to be a licensed developer to develop games for the system. Atari's like, I don't want you to limit how many games I can create. I don't have to pay you any royalty. I'm going to figure out a way around the security system. So they went all the way to chemically peeling layers from the chip to try to figure this out. But they still could not replicate this. So, so what they did is they illegally got a reproduction of the 10 NES program through the copyright office by signing a false affidavit stating that they needed it for use in a copyright infringement suit Nintendo had filed against them. So eventually, you know, Nintendo found this out that they'd got this code through. It's weird that you would get code through the copyright office. Well, well, back <laughs> I don't in the day you had to, to get a copyright on anything, you had to register it. It, it wasn't automatic. Yeah. So, right, right. So, so they had to send the code to prove that they had a copyright. If they, All right. right. So here's the funny thing is, so Nintendo comes back and sues Atari for they think they've infringed this code. And the way that they prove this in court, that they, Atari did indeed do this, is that Atari had copied portions of the security program that didn't have any purpose. <laughs> they just threw the code in and it did nothing, just like it was in Nintendo's code. So it was code that was non-functional. So mm-hmm. I guess this is a lesson to us. We should write code that's non-functional just in <laughs> case somebody copies it then we can prove that uh, that they copied our code. Well, that reminds me of how... Uh, have you heard this thing about how companies that make maps will occasionally in- intentionally put an error in the map to know if somebody Direct copied it? in there. Yeah. 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 Interesting. All right, it sucks so if you want if you're trying to follow the directions that are wrong. Exactly. <laughs> I think MapQuest does that a lot. No. <laughs> seem to get lost. All right, so the next case is I think the most interesting. It's Sega versus Accolade. Do you guys remember Accolade? Oh yeah. It made Hardball, yeah. Yeah. a bunch of other games. Oh yeah, Hardball. Yeah. Is that the only game you remember by Accolade, Tom? It is. Test Drive? Oh, Test Drive, okay. Test Drive Unlimited? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's Atari, actually, but Accolade was... Test Drive Unlimited is Atari. Oh, yeah. Test Drive was Accolade. Anyway, what about Law of the West? Do you remember that one? No. That was a good game. Anyway, all right. So, similar to Nintendo, Sega had a security system that restricted the development of games for the Genesis. Uh, Accolade, again, like Atari, didn't want to pay these fees, didn't want to deal with all this crap, so they bought a Genesis and three game cartridges. 
They wired up the console so they could make printouts of the executable code in the games, and they compared the code you know, of these three cartridges to identify identical chains. And the result of this is they developed this little manual for how to produce games with the proper security stuff, right? All works fine. Accolade publishes Ishido, a game, you know, they're using, it's all clean room. They developed, you know, this uh, protection code on their own, whatever. So it's all cool. So there's no copyright infringement. Nope. In 1990, a new version of the Genesis was introduced called the Genesis 3. So in addition to the code that they had before, they also searched for a specific, or a Sega inserted code now in this system to search for a specific location for the letters S-E-G-A, Sega. If it found them, then it would uh, display a message stating produced by or under license from Sega Enterprises, and it would allow the game to start. Well, the older games by Accolade just had the security code. It didn't have the letter Sega because it wasn't a Sega game, right. so they would no longer work. And they were about to release a bunch of games, Star Control, Hardball, Turrican. So they inserted this code with the letters S-E-G-A, Sega. So now it brought up this copyright thing that said it was licensed by Sega, even though it wasn't licensed by Sega. And so, so it's kind of a tricky way of forcing them. So uh, Sega took them to court. Right. It's and sued them saying game. that you're bringing up this message that's stating that, uh, that we, uh, we licensed a game to you when we really didn't. And uh, the judge, Barbara Caulfield, uh, she said, yeah, that's right. You know, you're putting this message up, blah, blah, blah. So an accolade won, or I mean, uh, Sega, Sega won, won the first round. And they made uh, accolade pull all their games off the shelves. Well, this is what's weird about our, our justice system, I guess. If you don't like the verdict, you can always just uh, appeal. Until you get to the Supreme Court. All right, well, there you go. So, yeah. So you can keep appealing, right? But well, in I this mean, case, it was good. Yeah, so Accolade appealed, and uh, Stephen, I guess it's Reinhardt, he was there, the uh, judge. He actually held Sega responsible, and he said that they were the, the ones that were causing the problem because they had attached, allowed their message to get attached to another cartridge. Yeah. It was falsely stating that it was licensed by Sega when it wasn't. <laughs> so Accolade, they had to put these letters in their code to make it work. And now Sega was improperly claiming that the game was theirs. <laughs> exactly. So so they won the lawsuit. So anyway, <laughs> there you go. And I guess, you know, we've gone through a lot of these. There's kind of the ones I found interesting. There's This book is huge. It's like 600 pages. Um, I'm going to have to get this. You know, it, it definitely, dude. And it continues to cover a lot more topics. Like I say, the Sega and Nintendo War, there's a lot of time devoted to that. There's a whole section on violence in video games, uh, Columbine. There's violence in video yes. games? Yes. Yeah, Def Jam icon. And, uh, <laughs> and it's awesome. That's a really good chapter. And it actually goes all the way up to the GameCube, PS2, Xbox, etc. I mean, it goes all the way up to current stuff. So it's a great read. So if you're interested in video games and the history of them, I'd highly recommend picking up The Ultimate History of Video Games by Stephen L. Kent. It's an awesome book. You'll have a really good time reading it. I've read it many, many times, and I will definitely read it again. Sounds cool. All right, so uh, we're back. We had a new episode after three months or whatever it's been. Thanks for keeping us on your aggregator. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And uh, we'll be back in about probably a month, I guess, this time, right? All right. Hopefully. All right. Well, until next time. Thanks for listening. Check out the forums and also vote for us on podcast.yahoo.com and iTunes. And dig. Oh, yeah, and dig now. But that thing sucks because it always, like, you know, goes out. You have to keep redigging. <laughs> Don't bash crap. on dig. Have no, I like dig. You, know, you got to redig? What? You got to redig? You have to redig it every once in a while. It's kind of lame. Okay, so where do, you, where do you want the listeners to vote for us? 
I well, they can do it at Dig, but I you podcast.yahoo.com and iTunes or whatever. Whatever, dude. Doesn't even matter. Yeah. Do whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk to you next time. All right, see you next see time. Ya. Peace out. Sixty hard drive. This morning with a bad hangover. Well, we're recording vocals too. Yeah. Detachable weed. Where's my remote? Listen to in the background. Trombones in it? No. <laughs> is it really recording us? I believe it is. Yeah. Yeah.
Lo... Oh, yeah, we get this. 